Welcome to Rogue Bogues, this is episode 31, big, big episode pro, we have the NBA draft to get through the Olympics, and later on in this episode, we will be joined by all-time Australian basketball legend, Luke Longley. Getting psyched about Longley, man. Got a couple of questions to ask him, and he's definitely a star in, in, in Australia, and, you know, obscure player that I really liked watching, you know, with Minnesota, and actually watched him a little bit at New Mexico, and then... In Minnesota, and then obviously, you know, Chicago and those guys. So, it'll be pretty fun. Yeah, and a hard man to pin down at times. Doesn't do a lot of media, as he'll explain. And that's not by design. It's just something that he he says he, he's never really sorted out. So, it's nice to get him just to tell his story more, I think. Mainly from, as he even says later on, um, from a point of view of kids knowing his story. So, look forward to that one. But the NBA draft has uh, is, is past us with uh, a long day. Not as many trades pro as I thought. I thought it was going to be, I'm on record as saying, I thought this was going to be the big banger. Because um, the last couple of drafts, there was a lot of trade rumors leading into it. It's going to be a big trade off season. And we haven't really seen that yet. We might see it you know, the next couple of days of free agency opening. But give me your analysis of the draft. Like, what, 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 what sh- which guy should we look out for? Are the, did the top five, ten, did it kind of eventuate how you saw fit or any surprises? Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of shaped it. It's, it's, it's getting tougher and tougher to evaluate these guys, Bogues. Like, especially with the overtime elite. I mean, the, um, the G League guys that are coming into the draft, then you got guys – you know, that are barely playing just freshman year. You don't know a lot about them besides their, their sort of histories and it's just getting younger and younger. So it's a little bit tougher. I didn't see any stars in this draft, like big time generational players, even though that ESPN, you know, that they had like eight guys being Hall of Famers already. I, I, I don't see where they saw that. I heard Evan Mobley being, you know, being compared to big kid out of USC, being compared to Bill Russell. I mean, you know, it's, it was, uh, Head scratcher at sometimes, but I think I saw some good players. The kid, the one surprise in the top 10 was, you know, Scotty Bonds moving up. He moved up for about three or four spots. He's an athletic kid out, you know, out of the state of Florida. Giddy, I think, was a little bit of a surprise as far as going six. You know, I thought that maybe possibly to the Warriors at seven, but, you know, somewhere in the top 10, later in the top 10. But him being at six surprised me a little bit. But I didn't really know the draft like I usually do. So I, I knew some of the top 10 or 12 guys, but, you know, everyone else was sort of a little bit of a surprise to me, a little bit of a, you know, surprise to me as far as watching. How about you, Bogues? Do you, do you pay attention to it at all these days? Nah, nah. Um, that's why I was hoping you could have given us more than I am because I don't, I don't follow <laughs> college basketball much, to be honest. Like, I can only watch so much basketball and it's predominantly Olympics and yeah. FIBA and a bit of EuroLeague and then NBA and NBL, of course. So... I don't, I don't really watch much college anymore. It was kind of janky anyway with coronavirus. It was on and off and, and, and yeah, just didn't, yep. didn't follow it that well. So, I'm not sure how this all worked out. Here's what I know. Cade Cunningham, the number one pick, um, not a clear-cut one to me as far as like a guy that's going to be a LeBron, a Kobe or anything like that. He's got good size. He's a good offensive player. Uh, he's not a great athlete. You know, it doesn't have a really high motor. Like the one thing that's surprised, like that's worrisome a little bit for me is watching his pre, like watching a lot of his workouts online, very low energy, very like just sort of hard to deal with 
with the workout itself as far as like just getting up, you know, going hard. I mean, he did have good numbers in college, no question about it. He's going to be a good player for them, but I don't think he's going to be a transformational player. I think he's going to be a second or third option when it's all said and done. Jalen Green is a is a kid, you know, out of the, you know, he's out of Fresno, California, went to the D League. Really exciting athletic player. Had probably the, one of the most flashy suits I've ever seen in the NBA draft. Something out of the Wizard of Oz. You know, he's really athletic. He could really score. Uh, not a cerebral player, not a, a big time like playmaker as far as for other guys, but he could really, you know, he's an athletic kid. Evan Mobley got dropped. He, he went to the Rockets, by the way. The third pick by the Cavs, Evan Mobley. That's the Bill Russell, uh, comparison, which is weird. He's, he's a big kid. He's got some ability. He could face up. He could run the floor. Um, he's a little skinny. I think he's more like a Bam, more like a Bam out of bio. You know, I think he could handle the ball. He could ro- roll to the rim. He could, you know, make some plays. Not, I don't think he's great at anything, but, you know, he's a really solid big that could, you know, that could definitely be, you know, top two, top three in your team. And then I talked about Scotty Barnes, you know, Raptors drafted him. He's an athletic kid, high energy, could really, really strong, could really straight line drive you, good around the basket. You know, Jalen Suggs out of Gonzaga went five to the Magic. You know, he he's sort of a so, you know solid skilled player. Could score out of the pick and roll. Was really good for Gonzaga. I, I think he's a lot like Murray from Denver, sort of that type of player. I don't think he could be your number one, but I think you know number two, number three. You know, he's going to Orlando, so obviously there's minutes to be played, but they do have guys that need the ball in their hands, you know. So it'll be interesting what happens there. But they could play him off the ball, on the ball. You know, and then obviously Giddy going to the Thunder. Sam Presti's probably the best GM in the league as far as his talent evaluation. You know, I'm pretty excited to see Josh. It'll be interesting what happens though with that, you know, that sort of makeup at, at the Thunder. They already have, you know, Alexander, uh, they already have Shea Alexander, you know, that they're going to put a lot of money into and give us a max contract to that, that handles the ball a lot. It'll be interesting what they do with him and Josh, you know, in the same lineup. So. I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you about that. So, so, Gilgis Alexander, his usage is high for, for or was high for the Thunder. I didn't catch a lot of their games, but I know he had a he had a great individual season. Is he is he handling the ball more from the two two spot, or is he actually playing? Is he predominantly point and bringing it up and 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 distributing and and also scoring? He was handling a lot out of the two. You know, they did have some ball handlers as well, but he handled the ball a lot. You know, I'm not a big stack guy, as you know, but the usage. I don't know his usage and all that, but I do know that I, I do know that he did handle the ball a lot out of the two. Played the combo guard when obviously when they subbed out the point guard, he would play, you know, he would play some minutes there. But um they had the young kid Theo Maladon. You know, he would handle the ball a lot, you know, out of the point guard. But he was more of a like set it up, you know, give it to Shea and just sort of get out of the way, sort of thing. So, you know, I he did have the ball a lot. Now, there were some rumors that they that Oklahoma offered Alexander for the number one pick. Now, I'm not sure if that's 100% true, but I did hear that from a couple of teams that, you know, that sort of, it's hard to get information out of Oklahoma City. Yeah, they keep it tight. Presti's sort of like J. Edgar Hoover with that. It's tough. It's tight to get out. He's he's hard. Shea, 35 games with the Thunder, 23.7 points, 4, 4.7 rebounds, 5.9 assists. He actually shot it really well, 
percentage for him early on in his career wasn't great and he shot at 41% from three, 80 from the line and 50 from the field. So, uh, look, the reason why I ask is I know he's he's 6'6", he's six, six, so you can move him that 2-3 spot if you need be is, is, you know, will Josh Giddy get the keys to run that team from the point guard position? Now, that doesn't mean he's going to be scoring. Josh isn't a guy that's going to be looking to get 20 a game. He's more a 10, 7 and 7, those kind of nights. Rondo-like, I think. So, I think it's a good fit, but I just wonder, I'd love to see Giddy get the keys as far as a point guard role. Um, but people, I commented on that, people were like, you're forgetting about um, SGA or Shea Gilgis Alexander, as we like to call him, that he's he's going to be that guy still. So Josh might not have the full keys thrown to him early. Yeah, I mean, development to me, Bogues, when you're talking about that is, you know, not to worry about it right away. Now, and, you know, minutes are important, obviously. When people say, well, he needs the keys right away. Uh, I get it, you no doubt about it, and it definitely helps, but... You definitely just need a plan for the kid and what what that role is going to look like. Um, I think because they're still trying to lose, they've got a thousand picks. You know, they got a thousand picks in the draft in the next few years. And they've got more, you know, first round picks and pick swaps than any other team in the history of the league. That's another useful, useful, useful stat for a later date. But um, I think that they're going to have a plan. They do they do a great job with their player development there and talent evaluation. I think that they're going to give him the ball. In my opinion, why Chase a, a very talented scorer. He's a very talented person on the ball, but his passing is a good. He's a good passer, but he doesn't have the vision that Giddy's got. And I think that having Giddy get him easier shots, so he doesn't have to handle it as much. Look, we talk about Ronda. Uh, we talk about Luca on the show. You know, we talk about Harden on the show. We talk about other guys that have high, really high usage rates when they have the ball in their hands. It's really easy for it gets easier for them when they have people with next level vision on their team. And I think, you know, Giddy does have some warts in his game, but his passing, his size and his passing are his probably two best assets. So I think having him on the ball and having Alexander off would be good, you know, would, would be a good deal. So yeah, I'd be interested to see what's going to happen there. I don't think they're going to trade Shea. I heard they're going to, they're going to extend him, and then, you know, they'll probably give him the extension, give him a year or two and then probably move him if they need to. But I don't think they're going to do anything with Alexander. I think they're going to play them both together and just figure it out. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, my only concern is I'd love to see Josh just, you know, you don't want to guarantee him one minute, but just getting the keys and, and taking his lumps. You know, he's going to have bad games, good games, okay games, and that's the only way you're going to develop. If you're a top 10 pick and, and you know, most of the guys in that top 10 bar the Warriors really are, are teams that, that, are, that are going to be, you know, not going to be that good. You know, you look at the Pelicans, the Kings, the Magic, Thunder, Magic, Raptors, Rockets, Pistons, you know, I think they're all going to be in a position where they're probably not really competing for a playoff spot. So, all those guys will get minutes and I hope Josh, you know, just just is allowed to play through his mistakes. So, we'll watch that space. And don't forget, they got Kemba. They got Kemba Walker too. too. Yeah. That's interesting. That's what I'm saying. Do you then- you know, is it a la LaMelo ball where Josh comes off the bench for the first 20 games until he gets comfortable? You know, who knows? Who knows what direction they go? But the Thunder aren't going to be a fantastic team. I don't, you know, no one really has them picked for the playoffs. And I think that's actually a good thing for Josh that he's going to actually get in the mix and play. Because sometimes as a top 10 pick, if you go to a team that, that just somehow snaked, a, snaked their way into into the top five or top 10 into the lottery, with, you know, because of their 2% chance and they got through and, and you go to, you know, they draft someone a la, you know, okay, Darko Milicic. Dark- Goes to the Pistons, uh, probably not a great example, but point being, he, he couldn't get those minutes and develop. Um, he's playing behind Rashid Wallace and Ben Wallace, Antonio McDice, right? So sometimes it's better to go to a shitty team and 
take a lot of L's your first couple of seasons, but acclimatize the NBA. And I just hope Josh gets those minutes. I think he will. He'll work his way into the lineup. The only last one I have here, Draymond Green reportedly called the Warriors to draft Jonathan Kuminga. Now, this one's an interesting one because I've heard I've heard Kuminga is a bit of a a bit of a hothead, bit bit loose off the court, um, and on the court can be a problem in the locker room. Um, had had a few red flags about him. So, but Draymond's on record wanting them to draft him. That's going to be interesting. So we'll see. We'll see if uh, Draymond can babysit old Jonathan to make sure he stays the course uh, mentally in the locker room, bro. Yeah. I mean, I've heard the same things on the Kaminga kid from a couple of scouts that I know around the league. But yeah, I mean, hopefully that they that they were high on the kid. And he was a high sort of prospect. But, you know, you don't want to be influenced by a player if you had someone else in mind and then you decided to go there. I didn't hear that about Draymond. That's new information to me. But this draft, Bogues, it's, it's getting to be more and more interesting every year. I did a 10-year survey on it from 2006 to 2015. To me, I, I sort of see being a successful draft pick as someone who could last into the second contract you know, six years or more into the league. And what I found was that 28% of first-round picks don't make it to year six. I found that 15% of lottery picks don't make it there either. If you drafted 20 to 30, it's a 44% chance of failure. And if you drafted 25 to 30, it's a 51% chance of failure. You're sometimes better off getting a a top five second-round pick than having a late first-round pick. Their failure rates at about... 55 to 58%. So, you know, it's getting weirder and weirder every year because these guys are getting younger and younger. And sometimes these teams don't have the, you know, they don't have the sort of the patience to develop them. They don't have a plan to develop them. And these guys are are, are sort of getting to be, you know, they're dying on the vine. And because there's 60 new players getting drafted in, there's two-way players, there's international players that they pluck. There's 200 players in free agency that 100 out of the 200 free agents usually change teams. So it's interesting dynamic with the draft and sort of how teams handle it, you know? Yeah, it is. It is. And you want to have – if you've got a lottery lottery pick, you want to make sure you're, you're heavily vested in some sort of development coaches. Now, you don't need 50 of them like some teams are doing, but you want to make sure that you've got someone spending time. And, and the, yeah, the Warriors reportedly signed Kenny Atkins as, as that role. Apparently, um, they see a, a really important piece to – you know, drafting Kuminga was was getting a, a good development coach. He's highly loaded, lauded as a um, as a pretty good development coach. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, I worked with Kenny in some camps in the summer for Nike, and um, he's very good in his player development. Uh, he was really good at developing, you know, players in Brooklyn. He was in Atlanta as an assistant. I believe he was in New York as an assistant, but I'm not sure. Definitely Atlanta. And then, you know, being in Brooklyn as the head coach, he, they developed a lot of mid-range players and mid-level players into being, you know, solid starters. And, you know, he's, he did a decent job in his one year with the Clippers as an assistant. So it'll be interesting, you know, where they go at Golden State because you got to know if you could develop players. They know, you know, in my opinion, they knew that Steve Kerr could manage great players to win championships. But now when you have these younger players coming through, Wiseman, now you have these two picks you know, your, your team's going to get younger and it, it, you need people on your staff and yourself as well to develop these young kids. And remember, besides working these guys out, you know, doing all these workouts and these drills with these kids and putting them in a weight room, NBA minutes are the only way these guys are going to get better. 
So, you know, head coaches sometimes have a hard time with that. They think that their assistants passing the ball for an hour and a half a day and, and lifting some weights and watching some film is and, and put them in the D League and let them play 28 minutes a game in the D League is how to get better. And it's not. You can work these guys out 14 hours a day. And, yeah, it's going to help getting the reps and things. But if you don't get them NBA minutes and then let them get their ass kicked a little bit and then coach them up on their mistakes – and, and just sort of put them in a good spot. If you just let them rot on your bench and just work them out, and then in year three, year four, said, okay, we're going to throw them in and we'll actually play in minutes, those guys tend to die on the vine. So it'll be interesting with those veterans, how these two young kids drafted at 7 and 14, do you find minutes for them or do you just dump them in the D-League? It'll, it'll be sort of an interesting scenario. Yeah, and, um, we spoke about the Warriors maybe having to move these two picks and someone else to try and get something back in return um, and that hasn't eventuated and, and so much so that Bob Myers was on record saying we've got, we got to start developing again. We've got to start getting some young guys in. Now, to your point of playing NBA minutes, uh, I don't see both these guys playing big minutes. One's stuck behind essentially Draymond Green and the other one, is, you know, Steph and, and Clay are in the mix as well. So, it's going to be interesting to see where, where that all goes. I did – one other tidbit with Kaminga was they said they liked his – ability to protect the rim so potential small ball lineups having him at the five with Draymond maybe could work as well so we'll watch that space but um, nonetheless interesting for the Warriors the Wizards with the big trade uh, they agreed to send Russell Westbrook a 2024 second round pick and a 2028 second round pick to the Los Angeles Lakers for Kyle Kuzma KCP Contavious Caldwell-Pope Montrez Harrell and and the number 22 pick. Now, what was interesting about this was last week, reportedly, Woj broke that the Lakers were offering Kuzma, Pope, and Harold to every team in the league. <laughs> I just laughed at that because I was like, that's, that's not really a Woj bomb, but yeah, pretty interesting. But how do you see this? Uh, this is an interesting one for me. Westbrook is very ball dominant. LeBron's very ball dominant. LeBron's not going to play off the ball, neither is Russ. Russ's triple-double streak potentially gone, or just his dominance with triple-doubles, because I don't think his ball's going to be in his hands as much. Does Russ get the blame if they don't do well? Highly likely. I think we're going to see what Houston kind of did towards the end of Westbrook's tenure. I think we're going to see, essentially, Westbrook playing the four. I really do. I think on paper, it's going to look like the four, but you'll have LeBron out there, AD, Westbrook, and then I think you just need two standstill shooters. You just need a, a Tony Snell and a you know just a, a, a flat-out old-school JJ Redick type that doesn't move quite a with someone like that at a, at a bargain price because they can't do much with their cap, but you, you're going to see the floor shrink somewhat if you don't do that. If, if you're playing a traditional four next to – or AD in a traditional center like Gasol with – with Westbrook, I think LeBron's going to be highly frustrated. I think those gaps and the floor spacing that he's had the last couple of seasons are gone, bro. This was an interesting one, Bogues, for sure. Um, all those points you made are valid. What what I think, you know, floor spacing is going to be a big problem. Health could also factor into it. Look, Davis has been, you know, very sketchy with his health in the last few years. LeBron's been breaking down earlier and earlier. And now you throw out – now, here's the thing. You throw out Pope, you throw out Kuzma, you throw out you know, Montrez. All three of those players, none of them are all that great, right? So, you're just giving three basically role players away. But those are three less players you have in your depth chart now. Now, yeah, you have Gasol, which is, you know, you could back up Drummond if you do resign Drummond. And now you're going to lose Schroeder, so, you, which you're going to get Westbrook with that. But – now your team, your depth charts just like 
it's shrinking more and more. And Caruso too. He's a free agent, right? Yeah, they're probably going to re-sign Caruso, I've heard. You know, t- t- Taylor Horton Tucker is one guy that they really highly covet. He's a very average player at best. He's an average player at best. So he's not a player that could take over things off the bench. They need somebody off the bench that could really, re- you know, sort of retool this team a little bit. They don't have any money to make it work. You know, they're not, they can't sign and trade Schroeder, I don't think, because now, from what I've heard, I'm not a capologist by any stretch of the imagination, but they're so high on their cap. It's hard for them to do sign and trade scenarios for Schroeder now, but I'm not, that could be a little bit, I, I, that could be miscommunicated on my end, but there's not a lot of room for these guys to make a lot of other, you know, sort of a lot of other moves to sort of put them over the edge. I, I think it's going to be really tough to, why Rondo was so good a couple of years ago for them is he got the ball out of LeBron's hands, but he was also a genius passer. Westbrook really isn't. He's an assist guy. He's not a vision guy. It's a big difference. Now, they, they, you know, they did the LA thing. They got the player with the biggest name and the biggest rep, but not necessarily the biggest, the best fit. Kudos to you, by the way. You did, you did predict that they were going to bring in another all-star type player, and I didn't think it was going to happen. Of course, fucking my prediction goes down south. Shocker that that <laughs> happened. But I think like they had a Buddy Heald deal on the table. Now, look, I get it. Like Buddy Heald's not a big-time name. He's not a guy that could carry your team. But he's somebody who doesn't need the ball in his hands. He can shoot 42% from three, and he can provide you with a little bit more space. Yes, you have to give up about the same package of players to go to Sacramento to get it done. Look, Kuzma didn't move me. You know, he didn't move the needle at all. Caldwell Pope didn't move the needle at all, and neither did Montrezl Harrell. So they didn't give up a lot of individual talent, but they gave up numbers. And now when you only have mid-level exception left and minimums to give out, there's not a lot of other weapons you could use to add players. Now, you could add that mid-level guy for $9 million, I believe, or so. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I think they, they, they will have that. But again, not a lot to sort of make a, a big splash. And I think they're going to deal with health issues. I think, you know, game management stuff and, you know, resting guys. But Davis, can he stay healthy? Can LeBron stay healthy? Can Westbrook stay healthy? And then can they gel as a unit together? Which I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's going to be tough. Yeah, I agree. It's just going to be fun to watch because there's one basketball um, and both those LeBron and Russ, the usage. I mean, Russ, like you said, he's he is a willing passer, but he's not an assist creator. He's he's going to get a, a lot of a lot of easy assists, but um, then you still get AD touches. They they just need they're going to need some role players, and and role players aren't going cheap anymore. You know, that you got to pay no. for you got to pay for you know Duncan Robertson's about to get a money bag. You know, he's not he's, twenty million. Yeah, yep. and he's I wouldn't say he's a role player. He's a step above role player, but he shoots a piss out of it. And those shooters don't don't come cheaply anymore unless you're getting one towards the end of their career. A la JJ Redick, where you can get him kind of towards the end of a contract. So they need they need a couple of shooters and if they don't get a, f- a bit more shooting on that team uh, I just don't see how, how how that's all going to fit and health is going to be the big key but we'll watch that space a quick rundown I'll, I'll run through all these tell me which one you like or want to chat about Chris, Tristan Thompson to Sacramento for D. Wright to Atlanta Chris Dunn and Bruno Fernando to the Celtics Josh Richardson to Boston for they just announced that was for basically a, th- a throw in yeah trade exception yep mm-hmm. favors to the Thunder for 
a pick and cash essentially, not not no player in return. Rubio to Cleveland for Torreon Prince and picks and cash. Landry Shamet to the Suns for Javon Carter in 29. He's obviously with Brooklyn. Plumley and the 37th pick to the Hornets for pick 57. So people look at that like, well, that's not a fair deal for the Hornets kind of got a better player, um, but salary salary, um, getting rid of some salary. They're the ones that have kind of been flagged so far. Which ones do you think? The Josh Richardson one is interesting to me, Pro, because I think he's a decent player, but end of his contract, one year left, I believe. Boston reportedly trying to clear cap space for the following season. Yeah, Boston, you know, Boston doesn't, again, they're like some of these other teams. They, they've got so much money invested in Tatum and Brown, and, you know, they, it's really hard for them to add a lot of assets. They don't have cap room really to do that this year at least. You know, I know they've made some deals with the Al Horford deal, which is going to give them some flexibility in the next couple of years, but this year is going to be tough. So they have that trade exception uh, that they acquired last year. So basically a trade exception is it's free money, which if you're over the cap, you could use this as house money. Where you, you can give $11 million to the, um, you could take back a player for $11 million in salary. Probably, I think, so from like 14 million to 8 million. So 8 to 14 million, you could take a player on essentially. And all you got to do is give them back a player and, and just a, any type of player. Usually it's a, a player that they have the rights to, a draft stash guy that they're never going to bring over, but they need a, you need a body, a warm body to trade them that you have access to. So it's usually the trade exception plus the player. And I don't know the player they got in exchange. Again, they'll never come over. So yeah, they got Josh Richardson for almost nothing. Look, they need talent over there. They don't have it. They traded Kemba Walker, even though that he was a little bit injury prone. He did average 19 a game. Al Horford sort of at the twilight of his career. He's not really going to help you all that much. You basically have Tatum, Brown, Marcus Smart, and some other small little pieces so they need to acquire they need to acquire players so Richardson's uh, you know he's an average defender an above average defender he's an average shooter from three um, a little bit streaky but he's a, a kid who's been around and add some defensive toughness to the team but you know not a lot of offensive firepower but we'll, we'll add at least he's talent it didn't cost him anything they didn't have to give up any talent for it and then um you know, they got Bruno Fernando, the kid from Angola. Uh, I think he played at Maryland. He's like a, just an energy guy off the bench who could, you know, roll to the rim and, and play some defense. But they just needed somebody. They needed a warm body. He may not even be on their roster. So that's sort of where that trade goes. And now they got more They got more minutes for Rodney Williams. You know, the, uh, the big kid, the young, uh, the young big, you know, Tristan Thompson gets out. So they got more mi- minutes for Williams at the five. So... That's basically it. Robert Williams, not Rodney Williams. I apologize. Yeah, but yeah. You anticipate there'll be more There'll be more trades coming up. Do you think it's going to be a busy one in the next couple of days or do you think it's just going to kind of just be like this, like a few just cash clearances from rosters but nothing really major? You know, Bogues, it's, it, you never know with this stuff. You never know. I think everybody's waiting for the Simmons blockbuster. Uh, I think you're going to have to wait a while for that to be a blockbuster. I think that's not going to be much. And we'll talk about that, I guess, later in the pod. But you're probably going to see something go down. It's always like, oh, you know, we're not going to see that. We're not seeing that many trades. Well, the Simmons deal, I know everyone was saying, well, that's going to get done on draft day. Well, Daryl Morey is not like Philly is not going to care about draft picks. So, like, usually if you have a player like Simmons that you want to deal, you do it on draft day to get somebody's picks. Like, if you want to do it to Golden State, you would get it before the draft to get their two picks. Philly doesn't need picks. They need talent. You know, because they, they don't have enough talent to go over the, you know, over the edge there to get to a championship level. So they're not worried about draft picks. They're worried about, the, you know, the package of players they can get back to get them over the hump. 
So you'll probably see a Simmons deal at some point. I don't think it's going to be a day from now. It's probably going to be middle of the summer, early, you know, early fall deal. In my opinion, you'll see some trades, but I don't think it's going to be any blockbusters, folks, to be honest with you. Touching on the Warriors, reportedly, Philadelphia just asking for drug money for, for Ben. Like They're just asking crazy, crazy you know, deals. Apparently, it was the Warriors. They asked the Warriors for Wiseman, Wiggins, the seventh pick, the 14th pick, plus numerous future first-round picks, all for Ben Simmons. And, and the Spurs, someone from the Spurs had leaked a similar story that, you know, Maury's just asking way too much. So, now- the truth somewhere in between. Obviously, they're trying to, there's teams out there trying to hammer down the value that Philly can get by knowing that, you know, let's be honest, Ben wants out. The other story with this is Ben Simmons has gone completely AWOL from the Philadelphia 76ers. He has the franchise or, or the organization. Anyone within the organization has not been able to contact Ben since the day their season ended, which was what, in um, two or three months ago. Won't return calls. Their agent won't return calls to the Philadelphia front office or coaching staff. So he, he's disconnected completely. Uh, the writing's on the wall, and I think teams now aren't stupid. They know, you're going to ask us for something stupid. We know he wants out. Are you really going to take the risk, a la James Harden, of bringing this kid back into training camp where he doesn't want to be there, causes a whole distraction leading into what should be a championship-type rebuild for the for a championship, essentially. Like, they, they were that close. Again, they got to the second round, but they need to make some tweaks and try to better themselves to a conference finals or a finals. Do you want that distraction to Ben Simmons in your locker room? So, I think the value's gone getting lower the further this goes. I think teams, trading partners know that. And, yeah, I mean, maybe it doesn't happen just based on that. If Maury's going to be stubborn on it, I, I just don't see them getting equal value now for Ben. I think they're going to have to um, – you get a similar type talent, maybe a Wiggins and a pick or something like that, but not much more than that, Pro. Yeah, so here's what's going to happen. He's going to go to 29 teams and knocking on doors and asking for the Lufthansa Heights from the Goodfellas. He's going to ask <laughs> for a King's Ransom. 29 teams are going to tell him to fuck off. All right, they're going to say, look, do you know what you're trying to peddle to us right now? I mean, have you watched the news? Have you been on social media? Have you watched any basketball? Ben's not an easy sell to teams to give you a ransom for. You don't have Shaquille O'Neal. You don't have Johnny O'Neal. You've got a player that has a specific skill set. He can guard people. He's got size. He can pass. But he can't shoot. And he refuses to shoot. And, he refu- and obviously, he's not... You know, he's not been the easiest guy to handle in my in, our, in your organization as far as, you know, transparency, being able to communicate. So then you're going to start getting lower deals. I think Philly's fucked because with this whole, like, their talent with Embiid and, you know, Embiid's obviously the number one guy. They're role players. Tobias Harris, high-level role player, not a role player. He's a little bit more than that. Um, obviously, he, he's got talent. Thibault, to me, is a fucking gem because of his defense. I, I think that with Simmons... He doesn't fit, but like with the sh- like he does, he'll help some teams. Obviously, he's going to elevate your talent, but they need more. Like these teams are going to start going over Philly. You know, obviously Milwaukee's at an all-time high from winning a championship with their sort of focus and their you know they've got all this sort of you know confidence in their game and, and they're at another level. You've got Brooklyn, who's going to obviously you know c- c- continue to add resources to that roster you've got other teams that are going to just start getting better so i don't know where they go from here obviously this thing is past the point of no return he's not calling them back distraction playoff problems the media is killing it i think that they're going to end up trading to portland for mccollum i don't think any other trade is going to work because like even if they did that deal bogues you know with golden state 
first of all, you'd be, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous to even think about that trade. But say you did it. That doesn't make them better. It makes them way worse. You get four picks that aren't really going to help you. You've got Wiggins and Wiseman. Yeah. Wiseman, who's a who's an okay player. He's an above average starter, right? Young kid, but you already Yeah, but you got Embiid. You got yeah, Embiid. Exactly. Yeah, then you get Wiggins will probably help you more than anything, and I don't like Wiggins either. So why the fuck would anybody do that trade? Ray Charles wouldn't do that fucking trade. No offense <laughs> to Ray Charles, I apologize. But and don't edit this out, by the way. This, you know, I, I you know, I said it, I'll own it. But that's the problem. So like you need a player that's gonna help you. McCollum's not hundred percent the answer. But he gives you offense. He can shoot. He can, you know, he could definitely give you a spark. He, you know, people aren't going to play him. You know, they play Simmons the fifth. You know, if I'm defending Simmons, I'm in the fifth row. I'm not fucking guarding him. He can't make a shot. He doesn't want to shoot. So you need a guy who's going to score. And for Portland, like they're already not working. Lillard's one one foot out the door. So like you need something. You need to change that up. They don't have anybody that can guard anybody on their whole roster. So you need somebody else. Norman Powell's a little bit pissed because the ball never swings to him. So now this actually gives them a – I mean, it's something different. It's not going to make them a championship team, but it's a little different. Look, you could go to the trade machine all you want and, and figure into these trades, but they're crackpot trades. They're fucking they're, – you know, they're fiction. What is a trade that a team's actually going to do? You could go to the cap room teams, but you're not going to get anything back. Like if I'm taking Simmons, if I'm San Antonio and taking Simmons, I'm not giving you any of my players for Simmons. I'll give you some picks, but I'm not giving you. So who's going to give you a player that's worth anything? And I think that's going to point towards McCollum. Now, Morey's going to say no, 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 until he's like, all right, fuck it. Let's just get it done and and, and let's sell it. You know, it's like a stock. You're, you're holding on to fucking Bitcoin and you're like, all right, fuck it. You know, it's not going to get any higher. Let's sell it or whatever. You know, that's, that's where I think they're going to go with it. They're going to get McCollum. And they're going to ask for that King's ransom, but I think everybody's going to tell him the fuck off. Yeah, um, th- I think it's going to. It could drag on, and and that's a risk that Phil you have. The closer this gets to training camp, you don't want that guy in your locker room if he's not if he's not returning calls at this point. That that relationship's over. That's that's your ex girlfriend. You've deleted her email. You've deleted the phone number, and you're, you're you know you're taking your car back from her. So we'll see how that goes. But yeah, we'll move on now to our big guest and interview. Enjoy. Well, moving on to the Olympics, we have a very special guest joining us. I've been meaning to get him on the podcast for a long, long time. Finally arranged some time. He's on the other side of the country. He is the former New Mexico Lobo, former Minnesota Timberwolf, Phoenix Sun, New York Nick, and most notably former Chicago Bull, three-time NBA championship winner, three-time Olympian Luke Longley. Welcome to Rogue Bogues. It's good to be on finally, Bugs. I've been banging on your door for how long has it now been asking to get on the show? It's been quite a while. I was a little bit disappointed you let Andrew Gaze on before me, but I understand that there's a pecking order in Australian basketball. I get it. I don't know about all that, Luke. A little bit of uh, porkies there. I've been trying to get you on for a long, long time. But I like the shade early. Pro, welcome you, man, to the show. Hey, Longley, by the way. The media has an easier time finding Osama bin Laden than you in the last six or eight months, brother. So, you know, I got I to gotta side with my folks <laughs> in this one a little bit. <laughs> Fair enough. But, I, you know, he, Bogues does have me on speed. Dial. I'm available to my to my guy for sure anytime. But um, I have been – I am guilty of um, changing my phone number and I wouldn't mind just, just hitting that real quick while you brought it up. So – I feel um, slightly misrepresented in that I I am really happy and willing to do media. Where I got 
where I changed my number was that the producers of all the shows seemed to have shared my number. So I was getting call from 18-year-old Joe, Joe Peanut from Radio Broken Hill in South Queensland at 6 o'clock in the morning because he hadn't done his research to know that it was 4 o'clock in the morning in Perth. And, you know, obviously it's my fault I got to turn my phone off, but that I did obviously in the end. But, I mean, that it then got shared internationally, so I'm getting guys from Greece, Spain, Canada, you name it, calling, and they don't do their research either. And it's, oh, yeah. We wonder if you could come on our radio show or can you do an interview? And after the last dance doco, they just went, it got berserk where I was getting, you know, 30 cent, felt, felt like a hundred. It was probably only 25 calls a day. And what do you do with that? Longley, let, let me stop you for a second there. All I'm saying is you hogged all the airtime on fucking the last dance. You know, I, I, I was going to get to the first dance, all right? Because you wouldn't shut the fuck up on the fucking, it's all Longley this oh, one, yeah. that. Yeah, you, you hogged the yeah, whole fucking yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm like that. I'm just, a, I'm just, a, I just can't get enough attention. You're right. I know. I need to have a good look at my character. <laughs> and that all started, Luke. The um, call started during the last dance, right? That's when that's when it really started to blow up for you, right? Well, yeah. Well, the the, the fifteen years prior to that, I hadn't had a, a single call. <laughs> um, obviously, did some willing media with the Boomers when we we're at the tournaments to trying to bail you out of trouble here and there, Bogues, when you'd say something silly or you know those sorts of opportunities I would take. But then nothing, just crickets for fifteen years after my career, which is just how I liked it. And then the Netflix thing. I think because I was largely not in it and people want to know why and I didn't know why and I hadn't even seen it yet. So really hard to comment. So I just, I, I left the, you know, I left the vacuum there and that got filled with bullshit. Often when you leave a vacuum, it gets filled with bullshit. But yeah. So anyway, that's, that's my, I'm obviously, I do protest too much, mate, because if it worried me, I wouldn't say anything. Obviously it worries me. So there you go. There's my ex- explanation. <laughs> There you go. This is like a psychology session for us all, Longers. But we'll- that's the first Shakespeare reference on Rogue Bones, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not coming from pro. And let's be honest, it'll be the last one, unless I'm talking about food. That's the only time <laughs> I get poetic around here. <laughs> right. We'll get into that a little bit later. Let's let's get started. We've brought you on here to talk mainly international basketball. You don't follow a lot of NBA these days, yeah. Um, so international is where it's at. Start with a few quick news items before we get into the actual Olympics. I'm not sure if you saw Luke or, or Pro. Pro would have seen it, but Adam Silver and the NBA have announced that they will would like to implement new rules to reduce. It does say reduce, and I put in brackets not stop non basketball related moves to draw fouls. So I'm not sure if you watched any NBA at all, Luke. But I mean, it's hard to watch at times. There's a lot of searching for fouls, the rip through, and, and look. You probably don't blame the players completely because it's been whistled that way. But watching FIBA for me these last couple of weeks, it's much more pure. It's a much more pure game, more chess involvement. So I was interested to read this from Adam Silver. I think they're, they're kind of aware that they've probably tuned into a few Olympic games and realized, you know, it's probably a better product. It, you know, it's going to end in an hour and a half, two hours. It's not going to go for four hours. And there's just no superstar treatment. How, how do you see that, Luke? Yeah, it's a great opening. It's a great opening for me because it's a bit of a soapbox for me. I don't. I don't follow the NBA at all until the playoffs and largely because of exactly that problem. I find it frustrating to watch that the game has become playing the officials rather than playing the game. Like I feel like that's becoming an elite skill is how to draw the officials out of the woods. And I'm really, really glad that the NBA is looking at addressing that because it takes away from the game and it lends itself towards 
the hero ball, the one-on-one thing where you get a guy, you get a mismatch and you get a guy on skates and get him up in there and jump in and get a foul. Like it's just, it's really the, it's, it's not an attractive basketball to watch. And I think it takes away from the game a lot. So I'm, I'm excited about it. And to support what you said, Bogues, I enjoy watching the national game and the NBL more for exactly that reason. And, and, you know, I feel like the international coaches are also, um, Rolling the dice more and being, being, to think outside the box more. They've got, um, obviously less talent to lean on, but, um, longer periods together. I don't know, but they just, there's more going on from the coaching point of view that interests me. The, um, a lot of the NBA stuff is, yeah, as I just, as I just said, is not as interesting. So uh, I love the NBA. It's, it was fantastic for me and I'd love to be following it more closely. But even if they clean that, if they clean up the playing of the officials, then I will watch it more for sure. And pro, how far do you think they go with that? Because we all know it's a superstar-driven league. The NBA loves to promote and market superstars. So with that, they need to be scoring 20, 30 a night and get into the line. As I read out that statement, what was interesting is, is it says reduce. It doesn't say stop pro. So do you think there's any chance the superstar calls kind of stop or do you think they just maybe, maybe get five or six less free throws a night? Yeah, I, I think that um – John Lowenstein, who's trying to, you know, the, the fourth string point guard in the Phoenix Suns trying out for a summer league is going to get fucked on this call more than James Harden's going to get fucked on it. I think they're going to go hard on it, like in preseason. I think they're going to go hard on it early in the year. And then I think it's going to start tapering off, you know, a little bit. I, I think that the superstar treatment in the NBA is not going anywhere. It, it's going to be here to stay. I think they're going to be big with it. Um, but I think. Just like most of the other things, I remember. I remember these referees coming into the locker room, and you've did it all your whole career, folks. You know, when they come in, they talk to you in training camp. This is what we're gonna, you know, really look at this year. And then in training camp, you see it called a lot. You see it called the first few games of the year, and then by fucking January, it's like you know, it's a free for all. So I think, I think they're gonna go hard early, and then I'm not saying they're gonna like disown it. But I think that they're going to go back to the superstar calls pretty early with it, in my opinion. What do you think? Let me argue that one for a second, if I can, Bogues. Go for it. So I guess the best example I can think of is the verticality rule. Mm -hmm. So when I was playing, if you jumped straight up and guy, it was the opposite. It was a, it was a, um, it was a block. So the referees were given a platform to change the way they interpreted that rule. It took five years, and each year they interpreted it more strictly, and now it's made the game much better. When a guy comes flying in the lane, if your vertical hands up, it's 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 fantastic to me that the big has an ability to defend vertically if he's off his feet. And that is something that the officials made the statement and they, they chipped away at it for a few years and it gave them a platform to actually get it done. You know, we, I want to assume the officials want to get it done so I guess what I'm trying to argue is that I, I don't think it ever happens in the same season, but I think it does happen when they have an intent, and I use that verticality rule as an example. Now, Bogues, are they ju- are they just going to do the rip through? Are they going to do like if I'm straight line driving, I got a guy on my hip, and I lean into him? Are they going to stop calling that call? Like wh- I I didn't get the full interpretation. Yeah, they haven't they haven't said exactly. It was pretty open open ended. It said just implement new rules to reduce non-basketball moves used to draw fouls. Now, the big running the middle of the lane 
in defensive transition, Chris Paul sees him, dribbles yeah. in front of him and falls over. Like, that's the kind of shit they need to cut out. You know, yeah. searching for contact, like jumping, like you said, the cha-cha-cha, jump sideways into, you know, to, to try and absorb some contact and, and get free, three free throws on a jumper. That They just need to stop it. And we spoke about it last week, Luke, uh, Pro and I, that Jared Dudley, of all people, he commented on it publicly saying, the referees just need to stop calling it and the players, you know, for a game or two will be pissed, but they'll adjust. And what I found funny is in FIBA is <laughs> even yesterday, Zach Levine had a pump fake defender jump to hit the three and then thought he got fouled. Is a I lot saw of, that. A yeah. lot of the NBA guys are just staring at the official every other play because they're like so used to getting these calls where whereas FIBA, it's like, no, we're playing basketball. We're not we're not gonna do all the antique stuff. Now is FIBA perfect? No, they they make mistakes too. But I think um to Luke's point that it will take time, but Arguing that, the NBA put in a flopping rule years ago and they were gung-ho on it for a year, maybe the first three months of the season. That's disappeared. We don't hear about anyone getting fined for flop warnings. They put in that strict technical foul uh, rule with anything. You couldn't even look at a referee or throw him a bad bounce pass. They'd tee you up. That's gone. So, I think it's trending. It's in the media. It's going to be topical. And I- I'm with pro. I think I think eventually it's just going to disappear and go back to where it was. And you know, it's it's just one of those things that's a great talking point. And FIBA's doing so well that I think Adam Silver probably thought it'd be a good idea to to discuss. What I think Bogues is first of all they got to go back to that respect thing to the referees. Like I think if you across the league, if you let everybody know that you're not messing around with the disrespect to referees. You know, that you're going to tee people up and throw them out if they're disrespectful because not only are the best players doing it, like any player does it. They show the refs up and it's a lack of disrespect and it's just every play. And I think that you have to nip it in the butt. And I think that the only way I think that you get this really done with the non-contact, I mean, the non-contact foul stuff is to, you know, after that, like the fourth or fifth time you do it, that you start adding some fines and or suspensions with it, which they'll never do. But I think you have to set a statement like, this is what, you know, we really mean business with this, you know, but, but like you said, they go away from a lot of stuff when they start saying, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And then I hope Luke's right. I hope, I hope within four or five years that it's, you know, they get it hopefully before that. But, you know, I just don't think, I think they'll get it a little bit. And like I said, I think that, I think the ninth guy in the team is going to get that call, non-call versus like, you know, James Harden or, or, you know, Steph Curry or something like that. Yeah. And that's a, that's a fair point. Well, I mean, we'll watch the space. Go ahead, Luke. Well, this last bit on that is I, I like what Pro said about the respect for the refs and the fact that it's every play and everyone's doing it. And I guess, um, it is about trying to reestablish that power balance to where the players don't feel like they can behave that way with the referees on every play. So maybe this is the kind of rule that actually gives the refs uh, a firmer footing to, to, to manage the game. And this is the kind of rule that it doesn't just stop those fouls being called. It actually gives them a, a bigger stick. And uh, hopefully you know, they can blow the whistle in a way that the players will respect them more than they do now. Yeah, it gives them a bit of currency, a bit of, um, they can be a bit more disciplined on their calls and not be afraid of the league coming down on them. Anyway, we'll move on from that. An, an interesting one I, I also picked up, which I want to give our USA friend here, um, on the podcast some shit about. There's some, uh, NBA players 
and officials that have been on record complaining about the FIBA basketball pro. So that's why shots aren't dropping for Team USA that usually drop apparently. And an ex-NBA player, Rajar Bell, it's a huge deal. He said he's spoken to numerous players. I've always said that FIBA balls affected my shot and other NBA players' shots tremendously. I hate that ball. It's lighter, feels smaller, different texture. He goes on to continue to smash it. They actually got a few scouts on a record as well, pro saying the ball is definitely a factor. How big a factor, I guess, depends on the particular player, but it's an adjustment for everyone. Some guys are going to make the adjustment easier than others. Pro, what's going on, man? I think the ball's round. I think it's the same weight. I believe everything's the same. It's just a different brand. Yeah, it's as round as my fucking stomach. Let's be honest, folks. I mean, everybody has to deal with it. Everybody deals with it, right? And if, if you're going to make excuses of why you're not making shots, yeah, it's different. No doubt about it. Texture's different. It feels different. All that stuff. But come on, man. You know, a lot of these guys have been out of it for a while, playoff-wise. They have plenty of time to train with it. You know, they got 12 Instagram trainers they work with. They got plenty of views on social media. You, you can't get one fucking FIBA ball to, to work out with. You know, give me a break. You know, like, I mean, I, that's not that's not a fucking excuse. Now, you could say, hey, look, the game's referee different. The style's different. The, all that stuff. Fouls are called differently. Use those excuses, which they're not excuses, but use those. Don't use the fucking basketball, man. Come on. What, Steph Curry didn't make threes when he fucking shot it? Larry Bird didn't do it in 92? You know, come on. And it is an adjustment. Uh, look, there is an adjustment, but like you said, it's an adjustment for everyone. It is It is hard. The NBA, I always struggled with NBA balls. I'm not sure about you, Luke, but the NBA, the leather balls that they used to use, they've changed them now. They're going to more synthetic, but the leather balls, every every single ball you picked up was different back in the day. Probably, I'm going back probably six or seven years ago and probably when you played, Luke, where every you know, because leather, leather ages and fades and, and, and feels different for each ball, right? So you'd go to one ball would be dark brown, one would still be orange. And, and I struggled with that sometimes arena to arena where I was like, these ones feel completely different. I felt like temperatures of, of climates actually affected the way, the way the leather felt, probably a little bit in my head, but it just, they felt different. So there is an adjustment, but like you said, it's, it's a part of the game. The NBL has different balls. You go to FIBA and it's molten and then Spalding in the US. And But at the end of the day, that, that's what it was like in college. I remember in college, every conference, I don't know if it's still like this, pro, but every conference had a different ball sponsorship. So it was like, you'd have to go to all these different arenas and it's just something you had to kind of deal with. It's it's the same as rims as well. And in, in college, for the most part, when I played, there was different fuel rims in different arenas. The NBL has that as well, where, every arena's got different rims and that's a bit of an adjustment but it's if that's what your gripes are I think it's just a little bit of sour milk Luke maybe that I agree with you I, I have to admit to never once giving a shit about the ball when I was playing I had much bigger I was trying to get my left foot in front of my right you know <laughs> never thought about the ball once but I will say that I think there's about 500 variables every time you shoot the ball from whether you're fading forward or fading back or left or right or it's a hand in your face whatever they are the lights in the stadium in your eyes I feel like Texture of the ball is just another one of those small variables that that guys take into account every time they shoot the ball or step on the court. And elite elite basketball players make thousands of those adjustments a game. I feel like the ball adjustments one of those guys will make easily. I think it's more like off-season blues to me. Yeah, you know, I think Longley was worried about J.R. Ryder slicing his fucking throat in his sleep rather than, you know, an NBA ball versus a FIBA ball <laughs> back in Minnesota, folks. What do you think? <laughs> The J.R. Ryder reference. Hey, I love J.R. Oh, I love that Minnesota team that you're on. Uh, J.R., that's a, that's a good call. Yeah, <laughs> he was worried about fucking you know, Chuck Person giving up the fucking ball once in a while. He wasn't worried about fucking, you oh. know, 
he wasn't worried about a fever ball, believe me. Hey, you got a good memory, pro. That's 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 black and white television days you're referring to. Hey, pizza's good good for the brain. I'm a fucking genius, but believe me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had we had Oscar Schmidt references with Andrew Gaze in the pod loop, so <laughs> Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look, you know how people are. They're the types of athletes that don't, they don't give you excuses. There aren't many of them these days, but, you know, they're the ones that don't care. Like, look, if they own it, if, they, if they're not playing well, they're not winning. Most are going to go to some type of an excuse. Like I said, if you're going to go to an excuse, go to style of play, how the game's officiated. Don't go to a basketball because besides Middleton, uh, Holiday and Booker, who came right off the flight from winning or losing a championship, who didn't really get a chance to use the ball and work. A lot of those guys have been eliminated from the playoffs for a while and they could, you know, they could have plenty of time to work with. I remember working for Tim Grover and we had like, we had Dwayne Wade who played in the Olympics. Like, you know, he'd come in about a month before the Olympics. We'd have a feet with three FIBA balls on the court for him and he would, you know, get used to it. Yeah. Probably the first few workouts, it was a little bit off. Not that he was Larry Bird by any stretch of the imagination, you know, shooting the ball, but he got used to it pretty quickly. But, like, come on, the fucking ball, give me a break. I'm pretty sure Paddy's shooting okay. Be interesting to survey the other NBA guys that have made that adjustment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Paddy's shooting the ball. Sadoransky's playing well. He came out of the NBA. Yep, yep, yep. Rubio's doing, you know, Rubio's shooting well. So it just seems to be Team USA. But I, I don't think any players. Have gone on record, but I know there is some gripes with it is an adjustment and takes you about a couple of days and then you should be good. But let's move on to the games. Pro, did you catch the USA game? So I did. US obviously losing to France wasn't a shock that they lost. It was how they lost to me. It was um it was the opening game of the Olympics for, for the US and France, but a late game run by France, 16 to 2 to finish out the game. It felt like US had control of that game all throughout. The ISO-laden offense for the US really dried up late, and I, I feel like they're heavily vested in Kevin Durant just bailing them out whenever they need a bucket, and, and probably a good guy to have uh, when you have that problem. But yeah, 16-2 run. The game finished 83-76. The US went on to blow out Iran by 60-odd points. And at the time of recording yesterday, they beat the Czech Republic. After a scare early, Czech came out of the gates and were up, I think, 10 at one point and um, ended up losing that game. Yeah. But how do you see the US's run so far, Pro? It's a learning curve. Obviously, they're going to figure out they're not, not, they're not any of the dream teams in the past. They're not going to just show up and win games, especially these days. I think that the way they were playing early on, especially against France, switching everything just to switch. We talk about that all the time, about that, how that's such an NBA thing to do in, in FIBA because they're so post up oriented and they're, you know, they're just smarter players that when you switch, they're going to attack the switch in the sense that they're going to post up instead of just dancing around with the ball for 22 seconds of the shot clock and trying to get by the big, they're just going to throw it right into the big down low that had a one switch on them or two switch on them. And then also they'll bring that weak side, weak side player to the high post and high low at which they were killing that. I think, and then the ISO stuff with, with the way the offense is run, and let's be honest, I don't care what offense they were going to run. They're NBA players in this age. They're going to ISO. They're going to step back three. They're going to do that cha-cha bullshit. And I think they figured out you can't do that against these teams because they move the ball. They shoot it. They're smart. They post up. They get you in foul trouble. And I think post-up defense is a big problem for them that I think teams will still take advantage of going into the medal rounds, which they're not great. They foul a lot. 
you know, the, they got some good post players. And I think that's, it, it's a, tr- a little bit troublesome, but I think what happened in the check game, like you said, they go, went down 10. They still hung in there for about two and a half, three quarters or so. And then they just sort of, you know, Tatum finally woke up from his coma. You know, he started playing well. And then Durant was on fire and made like three, four threes in a row. I mean, they're going to out-talent most of the teams. The teams I think they won't out-talent and show up and just beat them because they got better players are the Australias, the Frances, you know, even Slovenia to a certain degree because they got Luka. So, you know, I think they're they're playing a little bit better. The ball's moving a little bit more. Defensively still, though, I think they're going to get beat on those switches and I think they're going to get posted up. But... Yeah, I think they're getting a little bit better at it. Did you catch any of the games, Luke? Yeah, I've been watching the games. I've got my own thoughts on the challenges for the USA team, and I suppose it starts. So first of all, I suppose just the continuity that the other nations have. If you look at the Australian roster, uh, how many guys have known each other since AIS days, since they were 18, younger even, and played together. France has got the same recipe. Spain's got the same recipe. Most of these international teams, these guys have a – a long connection and a bond and a, a common basketball language. Obviously, that enables them to play a more interesting, you know, more more a deeper, richer style of offense. But also defensively, I think they've probably got their schemes um, better down. They also know how each of them is going to defend better individually. So the continuity part or the lack of it for the USA is tricky. And you know, we think about the, the coaches on the USA team with Pop and Kerr. If you, you could not find two NBA coaches that are better suited, but who have who have um, been proponents of ball movement and interesting and ambitious styles of playing offense. Remember when the Spurs won the last championship? You know, everyone was lauding them for for San Antonio basketball was that exactly the kind of basketball we all love, where it was equal opportunity and ball movement. So it's not that the coaches don't have an appetite for it, although they don't have players that can't do it. It's the continuity piece, I think, that is the real challenge for them and where they're starting to come back to the pack of international basketball because now the talent, now the talent thing's starting to level up a little bit. Um, the continuity piece is becoming a really big factor and I don't know how they're going to address that, but that's why they end up getting beaten by France or why they're vulnerable to an Australia is that such a big part of the game and such a big part of how a team's built. How do you, how do you put a bunch of guys together three weeks out, in some cases three days out? And expect them to compete with that, even with a talent surplus. I um, I, I, just, I don't know the answer for them other than building a, a program that um, lasts longer. It just doesn't work as well as it used to. Mm, yeah, I, I mean, watching that game for me, I think you hit it on the head. I think the the continuity thing, but you know, pop. He's starting to look frustrated at times just with, with some of the decision-making and, and it's kind of – it's interesting. Like you said, Steve Kerr and Pop are big advocates of ball movement and there's not a lot of ball movement on that team. There were There's just so many guys on that team that for their clubs – if it goes swing, swing and gets to them, they're shooting it, right? So I noticed a few times, even in the check game in the first half, like Tatum, they're in full rotation, it gets, it gets thrown to Tatum and it was just, a, it had to be a quick swing, swing pass and and he holds it for two or three seconds looking to get into his ISO and then swings and it's too late. And that's what they're suffering a little bit because yeah. they really don't have many role players on that team that can just understand 
hey, you know, I need to make that right play rather than I haven't had a shot for four possessions. I, I need to get in my bag a little bit. And, and that's the interesting conundrum. The battle for the US, in my opinion, is more with themselves and other teams. It's, it's like you said, playing the right way. They tend to go small pretty early, switch one through five. Now, Euro teams will punish you for that because they'll, they'll get that big on the block. And we saw that with Czech. I mean, they don't have dominant post players. Uh, big fella was, was decent, but they, they, they really exploited having Devin Booker on the three or four man rolling and, and they scored out of it. So I totally agree. I think it's it's interesting, but for me, I think the battle is is within their own group more than it is against other teams. If you look across to the Australian version of that, what have we got? Six or seven NBA guys, but all of them are role players in the NBA. Even if you include Patty, although in this iteration in Boomer's Patty, he's taken on the the role of the of the go to scorer or what I like to call the the fulcrum point for the offense. So. The NBA guys in the Australian system, like Fiebel, for instance, or Dante, are doing, they're less prone to what you're talking about. They're less prone to catching it and going into their bag because they're used to being playing off the ball. So they almost suit this a lot better. The guys on the dream team, on the American team, tend to be guys who are the terminal parts of the offense, the end of the offense, the guys that are going into their bag. So when you've got seven or eight of those guys, then you've got a sticky ball. Whereas you've got the guys on the boomers, and I think the Spain's very similar. They're all guys that are happy to facilitate, even though they're coming out of the NBA. And that's that's my extension, I suppose, of the point. No, I agree with that. And I just think that, you know, players should look themselves in the mirror about, like, they got to – and it's hard because that's the way they played their whole lives. ISO, don't pass the ball, just, you know, coach allows you to do whatever you want. And now you get into this this sort of ecosystem where you have to – you know, you have to move the ball. You have to cut. You have to, you know, don't, you're not going to get shots every other possession that you have to understand how to play with each other. And it's tough. Like you said, the continuity piece is big, but it just, you should look yourself in the mirror and say, maybe the way I play, I got to change this up a little bit and be, do a little bit more as far as passing the ball, moving, screening off the ball, doing some of these other things, because most of the rosters ISO oriented. I mean, look at all those guys. I mean, look at the dream, look at the USA teams before this. Even when the ones with Kobe and LeBron and Chris Paul, Darren Williams, like those guys could pass the ball, and they, you know, they do play a lot on the ball, but they could they could sort of downshift when they need to. Where this team, it's tough for those guys to downshift because that's the only way they play. So I think they're going to have a little bit of issue deep in the uh, in the metal round. I still think they could beat. Nine out of 12, eight out of 12 teams just by doing whatever they're doing. But I think that there's going to be these three or four teams that come up that's going to give them a problem. Yeah, the luxury they have, regardless of all this, is Kevin Durant to have that guy do what he's doing. You know, not only in the NBA, but in FIBA. He's amazing to watch. He's an ISO guy. but um, And his frustrations at times when I was with the Warriors for that small stint was like, hey, we don't need to run all this misdirection shit. Just give me the ball and get the fuck out of the way. And he had a point sometimes because he's, you know, he catches it elbow extended or 18 foot or even top of the key behind the three. That's where he's going to get it late in offense anyway. So, he's sometimes he'd get frustrated and be like, just give me the ball there early in the shot clock and not understanding that at times you do obviously need to get other guys involved to feel comfortable. But yeah, they have that luxury of, of, of a guy that in close games that they can just throw it to anywhere on the court. And in my opinion, um, I've said this on record, I, I think he's going to go down as one of the one of the best scorers of all time. Um, not a big call by any means, but just with with where 
on the court he can score from. For me, it's anywhere. He, he can get in the paint. He can, he can, he's athletic enough to throw it down on you. Um, he's good from all, all points of the three-point line and he can just get to his shot because he's, he's seven foot tall. Says he's 6'10", he's not, he's seven foot. And I think that's, that's the one luxury the U.S. have that they didn't have in 2019. They didn't really have that guy that they could just throw it to for an ISO where, you know, this team might not be as, as ball movement worthy, but the luxury of just a 10 seconds getting a bailout, which he made yesterday against Czech. He made a few big bailout shots late in the shot clock and it's tough to stop. Yeah. The way Durant isos is a little bit different than where Tatum or Zach Levine isos too, by the way. Like, you know, the shots that he's going to get, especially being seven feet tall, they're a little bit more cleaner than the other guy, you know, those other guys who dance around a lot and just takes, you know, take fucked up shots and then just sort of get into a rhythm that way. Durant will like catch at the elbow, a jab you off, shot, two dribble pull up, transition three pull up like he's not dancing around a lot like these other guys he's a little bit more sort of like streamlined into his in, into his package of of things that he could use offensively yeah so, more efficient yeah more efficient all right slovenia argentina so this was a luka Doncic show 48 points his first game first olympic games opening game just absolutely killed it um we'll talk we'll break down his stats a bit more later on but they are going to be tough they have surrounded him with a bunch of shooters a bunch of guys that just as we just spoke about know their role pressure is on luka obviously his usage is going to be you know probably at an all-time high for an olympic games for them to have any chance but you just don't want to doubt the kid i mean what he's doing out there just such a big strong body do you put a smaller quicker guard on him that he can just bully or or do you put a you know a bigger guard that's probably a little slower? It's a conundrum for most teams. A bit you know easier to scout before you play him because you know we're gonna we gotta put put together a defense to stop Luka Doncic. But then implementing that over forty minutes is tough. But that game was was just a, a great performance, Luke. I'm not sure if you caught it, but he was he was getting to every spot on the floor. He was hitting threes, he was getting to the free throw line, and he was getting guys involved and just an amazing performance. I didn't watch the Bogues, and I found Dallas hard to watch this year for the same reason is that. He's just such a high usage ball dominant guy. I think he's great, but it's just not fun to watch for my money, so I didn't watch it. All right. Pro? Yeah, I mean the kid the kid's ridiculous as far as I, I think that when we were talking about it last week about the Olympic stuff in the last couple of weeks, you, you just need to like you said, put shooters around him, put guys that don't need the ball. I, I think if you have anyone else that plays with him that needs the ball, it's a it's a good bad thing. The good thing is the guy's one of the smartest players I've ever seen, and he's the most one of the most competitive guys I've ever seen. And obviously, you know, he has the results to back it up. But he can't operate with another guy that needs the ball like that. You know, that even needs the ball even close to like that. So I think the team they have around him is perfect. He's played with Dragic a bunch. The other guys are just shooters and sort of role players. And I think they're going to be tough. I think, I don't think they'll, I don't think they have a chance for a gold, but I think they have an outside chance to get that bronze, to be honest, just because anytime he steps on the court, he's sort of like a fucking cyborg. Like he just sort of knows what spots guys need to be in and, and he can pass the ball. He can shoot, obviously, gets to the basket. He's a streaky shooter. I don't think he'll ever be a great shooter. I think he'll always be feast or famine when he shoots it. But the, the rebounding, the passing, the, the, you know, the size that he has at his position, it just makes him tough to beat. I think, I don't think they're good enough to beat like US or Australia, but I think that, I think they might be able to sneak up on France or someone like that if they're not, if they're not looking and be able to, you know, try to get a, a bronze. What do you think, folks? 
Yeah, well, the reason why I bring them up is because they potentially will be a, a crossover game for us, which we'll get to. We'll break down how that all works a bit later. But I mean, my concern for them is does Luca burn out? You know, he's, he's playing 30, 35 minutes. The usage is out of control. They're one bad Luca game away from being out, essentially. Um, now, time of recording, they play Spain tonight, which will determine where they, where they finish exactly. But yeah, I mean, probably not a team you want to face in a crossover. Probably rather get a, a Czech or an Argentina if they qualify um, in, in the first round. But it will be interesting just to see how far he can carry him off his own bat. I mean, they've just surrounded a bunch of three-point shooters. Uh, Dragic does play on the ball a little bit and give Luka a bit of a rest. But for the most part, it's going to be Luka Doncic versus whoever. And we know that he can he can win a game off his own bat. So, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. But we'll move on to the Australia games. We'll cover all three of these. So, I've been lucky enough to commentate these here in Australia. So, had first-hand experience watching every minute of these. Australia versus Nigeria was the opener. I'm not sure if you saw any of these pro, but if you have, chime in. But I feel like we were lucky to win that game, to be quite honest with you, because we, we turned the ball over at a really high clip, opening game of the Olympics, but so did Nigeria, so that it evened out. Nigeria missed, I think they shot 50% from the line. They missed 10-plus free throws, and, and we went, you know, we ended up cruising to victory towards the end. But it was it was a closer game, and I feel like if Nigeria, you know, didn't turn the ball over as much and knock down free throws, um, that could have been a potential loss. But, you know, we got over the line, and, and if you looked at, a, looked at a stat sheet at the end, you'd say, oh, yeah, easy win for the Boomers. But it, it was an ugly one, and I think um, we adjusted beyond that to the other two games, but just touching on that one, I'm not sure if you gents saw it the same way, but I think we we kind of dodged a bullet early in the Olympics. Well, yeah, I mean traditionally opening games, uh, Australia hasn't done well in opening games ever. There's a lot of first time Olympians or guys that are new to this sort of competition on our team. I was terrified for them before that game. I really didn't think that was going to be a bogey game for them, and they played initially to my expectation. And, and it, the, the example is the turnovers; they just threw the ball away. They looked shaky. But what I thought was interesting in that Nigeria game was the point in the third quarter where Australia had solidified, started to play better, started to use the ball better. I think they might have, you know, been only two or three points up. And there was a couple of plays where it just looked to me like it was the evidence Nigeria needed to believe that they weren't able to compete, that Australia were better. And their body language went to shit and they just, they changed. The, the team dropped. The team dropped, literally physically, you just saw their body language change. And um, conversely, the Australians, that, those couple, two, three plays were the evidence they needed to know that they were a superior team. And from the, then, the trajectory of the game just kept going in the opposite direction to what it had earlier. And it, it's amazing to me when basketball, you can see basketball games pivot like that. And the Nigerians, they haven't been at that in that top four or five teams in the world for a long time. And it's, it's almost like you have to get past thinking that that's where you, where you fit and where you belong before you can beat teams like Australia. And Australia's only recently gotten into that echelon where that's, that's where they believe they are. And so it was almost a belief thing in that game was the, was a differentiator. And I know that's oversimplifying, but it, it seemed really visual and visceral to me. Yeah, uh, both you're right though with the with the turnovers for sure. Like taking care of the ball, I think. And, and to Luke's to Luke's point, like you know, opening game, you know, some jitters there. You know, so I could see that happening. They just played a little nervous, it seemed like forcing shots, forcing possessions, and they just sort of got into their rhythm. I think it's important to get punched in the face early, figure it out, say, hey, look, we got to sort of pivot on how we're going to play these games. And I, I think they've been 
you know, they've been pretty good ever since. But yeah, I mean, Exum, what do you have, like four or five turnovers during the game? Guys like that got to take care of the ball. You know, I know Patty and Joe turned the ball over a little bit as well, but you know, they got into the flow and their rhythm and they just started, you know, being more efficient and playing hot and they just sort of rode it out. But yeah, it was a little bit nerve wracking at first for them, for sure. Nigeria was hanging tough, but they just sort of turned it on, you know, last, last half of the game for sure. Yeah, and got it done at the end. Like I said, you look at a stat sheet uh, for most people that don't follow the game that closely and you'd think it was a good performance, but it was just uncharacteristic of, of us. I mean, De- even Delhi, who looks after the ball, his assist to turnover ratio, he, he made a few uncharacteristic mistakes, but they, they got the win done. I think where they, you know, where they've really excelled is, is defensively. Um, they've done a, done a fantastic job. And, and that's where we move on to game. Game two, um, what I like to call the return of the big man in this game, um, which was nice to see. The bigs really did a fantastic job. Um, Baines, Landale, and Kay all in double-digit scoring, and it just seemed like uh, they weren't really isolations in post-ups or anything like that. It just was – it was – just working like a big man should, rolling hard. And we really affected this game on the offensive board. And I, I, I would say, again, probably dodged a bullet because of our effort. We didn't play the most clinical game. We didn't shoot the ball particularly well. But our, I think our bigs kept us in that game and kept us that, that little lead buffer by second chance opportunities. I mean, Jock Landau, Nick Kay, and, and, and Aaron Baines just tipping out offensive rebounds, uh, the few free throw tipping rebounds at our end to get us an extra two points. They really got us out of some messes offensively just by getting us a reload opportunity with an offensive rebound. So, I know Longos um, would be happy to, to you know, talk about the return of the big man in that game. It was nice to see. Yeah, mate, it was nice to see. And a lot of it was work rate, mate. Those guys just work really hard. And uh, as you said, all the little things that they did, the rolling, the bow board, the tipping. I mean, these days, especially more than ever, when the, with the game going away from the post-up environment, that is the role of the big. And uh, I was excited to see it. And I'd be more excited if they would. Uh, I, I'm actually happy to see them post-jock up a little bit. I think he's pretty efficient down there against bodies that aren't too much uh, stronger than his. But, um, yeah, I was obviously, yeah. The other thing I suppose is there's, the guys that handle the ball a lot are doing a nice job, starting to do a better job anyway of rewarding those guys for their work rate as well. And they keep rolling hard, they'll end up giving people fits. So, yeah, I enjoyed that game. Yeah, and just real quick, Jock Landau, 18 points, Aaron Baines, 14 points in 14 minutes, and Nick K 15 in 26 minutes. So, they did a very good job. Ingles had 14 in that one, and Paddy had 16, but I think the bigs were just a key pro. Yeah, the little things like you were saying, I mean, I think there's not a lot of Greco-Roman wrestling going on for, for rebounding. I think they do a good job. Wandale does, Wand- does a good job on the roll, not get, if he doesn't get the ball, getting like the inside position on the big offensive tip outs I and mean, he had a few of those you know both those guys you know Baines and himself had and K had had a couple of those where they're just smart they're playing smart they're rolling hard to the rim they're moving the ball those bigs are really you know really build those guys out it was a tough game I think Italy you know hung in there till the end and I just like the little things that Australia did for sure during those uh you know during that game as well but the bigs they're screening well they're rolling well you know, and they're, they're making some things happen. So, yeah, I, I, uh, it's been fun to watch. And long as um, Pro thinks that Jock mows lawns and calls him Lawndale, so just going to have to deal with that along the way, mate. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, he needs to do the top of his hair as well as the side of his hair. He's got the lawn on the side and the, and the, and the bushy bit on the top. Lawn oh, mohawk. Yeah, they, he should roll up in a, a trailer for the game and, and just wear a, a wife beater with, sh- with jean shorts and play the game. <laughs> I think that's a fucking great look for Lawndale, don't you think? We'll call him Joe Dirtdale. <laughs> he's a country boy. He's a country boy. So he's, Love uh, the kid. His family has a farm. He's a, he's a great kid, though. I've got a lot of time for Jock Landale. Moving on to the final game of the pool first round of the pool round, um, Australia versus Germany. Now, this was a battle I spoke about it on telecast. It was kind of the ultimate battle of small ball versus big ball, really, because Germany refused to go small and match Australia's smaller lineups when we went Matisse at the four at times and Jock at the five. And it worked for Germany when you looked at the stat sheet because they they really out-rebounded Australia. They were, what was it? The count was 45 rebounds to 28. So, as we spoke about, um, in the game before against Italy, our work rate on the, on the rebound was phenomenal. But um, Germany kept getting offensive rebounds, but just couldn't they couldn't capitalize on on those offensive rebounds. But our small ball lineup just caused a lot of problems defensively for for Germany. We had thirteen steals in this game, and a lot of them were for breakout layups for Matisse and 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 excelled our break for Dante to get ahead of steam on a four on four on three or whatever it was. And that's the big. Sticking point I've found with this national team for the for, for Australia, we were really good defensively the last couple of campaigns, but adding Matisse Thibel and Dante Exum that length and Matisse, I think, I think he's going to be he has a chance to be NBA uh, defensive player of the year in his career. I have no doubt at all. He just affects so many plays, um, deflects, gets deflections on passes that he has no business even being in the realm of. He made a play probably I think in the second game against Italy where he probably probably stepped up too high on help side and then they threw a bounce pass and he just spun quick and got a deflection and then got the ball back to led to a fast break so just being phenomenal to watch and probably that missing piece Luke of, of what, what we haven't had with the national team we all love Joe and we know what he brings but he's not that athletic you know specimen that that uh, Matisse Thibel is and he's just brought a great defensive prowess to the Boomers. Yeah mate I've been I've always I've been a fan of him with the Sixers but I've been blown away by the, his level of athleticism, how smooth he moves, how well he reads the game. I mean, he's rebounding. He, he's rebounding in there with the trees. I'm a big fan. He's a guy that knows his role well. And you're right. So when you've got guys like him and Dante on the backside of the defense and having to cover out two guys on a weak side and then close out hard and still, still contain, that changes what you can do on the ball. So he really gives... He puts air in the sails of the guys that are on the ball and, and um, gives them a lot of confidence. And I think terrifies the ball handler. Well, those guys are coming off those screener rolls on the strong side and seeing him back there and they're hesitant to pull the trigger because he's so long and he reads it so well that yeah, he, as you say, I, mean, I, I, I think he probably benefited greatly from guarding Ben Simmons from the last two or three years in practice or two years, however long he's been in the league. Um, he's great at staying in front of the ball and using his length and surprisingly quick, you know, recovers from mistakes really well. Sometimes I like when he makes a mistake because chasing from behind and making those reads is terrifying. And you can see guys looking over their shoulders the whole time and watching him. And so yeah, I, I concur, mate. I think he's a game changer for us. And, um, certainly the coaching staff that I've spoken to with the Boomers feel the same way. And he's just going to play more and more minutes. Uh, as he gets more and more comfortable and they understand what he is. I'm a fan. And on top of that, on top of that, reportedly, sorry, Pro, on top of that, a fantastic guy. I mean, from all reports, the guy's, you know, he hasn't been part of the national team before. No one really knew him that much from juniors. Didn't spend a lot of time in Australia as a kid, but they said he is just a phenomenal person, fully bought in, great personality, loves to joke. And that's a part of, 
you know, that, that national team culture is fitting in with all that and making sure that, you know, you leave your whatever your problems are at the door and, and for the greater good of the group, your off-court issues stay there and, and he's been sensational in that, bro. Yeah, I don't know how much better he got from God and Ben Simmons. I mean, when he was defending him, all he had to do was sit at the top of the charge circle the whole fucking time, Longley, but I'll take your fucking <laughs> word for it. But no, I think that the guy's going to be better than Bruce Bowen. I've been doing defensive breakdowns, the best defenders technique-wise in the NBA, and I, I spent a, a lot of time on him. He's so technically sound at 22 years old. And it's forget about like the length and all that, which makes it easy for some guys to be good defenders because they get steals. A lot of people think like just getting steals um, is making, you know, makes you a good defender. And he does that. But like his technique getting through screens, how he plays off the ball on top of on the ball. And, I mean, the guy is phenomenal at that. And Bowen don't like Bowen didn't really get going until he was about 25, 26. He didn't really become a really elite defender till he's about 28, 27, 28 years old. Because remember, he was a journeyman. This guy already is probably fundamentally better than Bruce Bowen was um, at 22 than Bruce was at 27 or 26. And I think he's just getting started. I think this kid's going to be really good. He's definitely a championship caliber player. And he changes he, he changes things because he could defend any position. He could keep you in front. He seems like a great kid. And, you know, I, I watched a couple of his vlogs on YouTube. He's a funny bastard. He's a, he's, I think he's a championship level player. He, he reminds me of like that whole Giannis thing where he's just a great kid and he play and he's a good play, not obviously not that caliber player, but just sort of like him as a person. It's infectious sort of being around the guy, it seems like. So I think, I mean, to have that guy in your national team for years to come for like four more Olympics, it's, it's great. It is. Did Bruce Bowen win a defensive player of the year of a pro? He did. He did not. Nope. That's surprising because he was he was one of the premier. At least when I came in the league, he was kind of phasing out, but a perimeter defender and and three ball. That, that was kind of yeah. That was his role. Was re- yeah, twenty to twenty three, second team all defense. Twenty three to twenty eight. Uh, I'm sorry, two thousand three to two thousand eight, first team all defense, but never won the award. Yeah, that's interesting because he's he's phenomenal. But I think Matisse will have one of those trophies when it's all said and done. An interesting observation out of this Australia-Germany game, uh, the loss of Aaron Baines reportedly hurt himself in a game um, against Italy and then um, further hurt himself um, in a bathroom incident in the fourth quarter. They've announced that he's out for the remainder of the Olympics, so they went into this Germany game. Uh, I didn't know who they were going to start. They ended up starting Nick Kay at the four, Jock at the five, and it, it looked like we didn't miss a beat. Look, I think um, – I think right now and probably even the next game, we won't see how the absence of Baines affects the Boomers. But I, I, I truly believe that um, the Frances of the world, the Spains, even potentially the US, Baines is, is a pretty big out further down the tournament. Um, if you remember correctly, Longley, he um, he had a hell of a game against Rudy Gobert and in, in, against France in the World Cup. He, he took um, took Rudy out on the perimeter. I think Baines, he might have been five for five or five for six from three that game, like just shot the piss out of the ball. And you factor that in with his big body and ability to roll. I think people need to realize that I think towards the end of the tournament, that is a pretty big loss and it thins out our rotation now. Now, all of a sudden, Nick Kay's playing more minutes. The backup for Jock and Nick now is Duop Reith, who's a you know, inexperienced player at Olympic Games, hasn't played a whole lot of basketball, but is a solid body. Um, they like what he's doing, has length, but it just it just has thrown the rotation out a little bit minute-wise. How do you see all that, Luke? Well, you pretty much covered it, mate. I think it did show up in the game against Germany, even though we won. I think you have a rebound count in front of you, but I know that there was a possession where 
Germans have five offensive rebounds in a, in a possession. That doesn't happen with Baines on the floor. It just doesn't. Jock's a great rebounder, but he doesn't take up the kind of space that Baines takes up, and it's going to wear guys out having to fight for space and come back in from the three-point line to help out. Like That workload that Baines soaked up is going to, I think, going to hurt on, on the boards primarily. Um, he's a fantastic screener. Now, there's nothing against the other screeners, but he's an elite screener and rolls great. I think – and also I've got to put my hand up and say that I'm an unabashed Bangy fan. I'm going to work with him since he was young. I, I know him as a man. I, I really like him. So this may be biased, but I, I was devastated for him. I spoke to him after he heard, heard himself and to hear the guy – over the phone, it was just absolutely gutted. And um, he also brings that fantastic competitive fire and energy and slight edginess to the group. You know, people are scared of bangers. Ask Valentunas. No one wants to deal with <laughs> Bainty when he wants to when he wants to when he wants to seal you down low or fight you for the glass. Like he is, he's terrifying. I'm scared of him. I'm sitting on the bench coach and I'm worried about getting whacked. You know, like he's a he's an X factor. And I think every team needs that, and I love that about him too. So to say that will we will we will we or won't he miss him? I think is is a, is, a, is a waste of time. Like they're going to miss him. It's how they how they how they cover up for him. And there are guys there that can. And Gorge is really clever, and they'll do it. But it's a big out. Forty-five to twenty-eight, the rebound count last game against Germany. So spot on with your analysis there. Longley might need to get you on uh, Channel Seven. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. No worries. Moving on to that. So the seeding for this is a strange one. So for everyone that's not familiar, there's three groups of four. Get ready for this, Pro. I've explained it before, so get your head around it. But the three first-place teams go in a pool, and the second, the best second-place team go in a pool. They're all together. And then it's the next two second-place teams and the top two third-place teams. So what we're looking at, we're looking at, Jesus. Yeah, it looks like the US will be on our side of things, which is a good thing. We don't get them till the top four um, if we, you know, get get there. But from what I understand, our opponent will be in the quarterfinals will either be Argentina or the loser of Slovenia and Spain, which is tonight at, at time of recording. And the way they do it is it's random. So it's it's done by ping pong balls, I believe. So nothing now in FIBA is predetermined. The reason why they have done that is to stop tanking. There were teams, you know, in the past that was within the rules. They'd lose a game on purpose to get a better cross match with someone else. So FIBA's tried to figure out a way now of how to eliminate that where you can't you can't move up or down pending a loss. Um, so from what I understand, we are we are facing Argentina or the loser of Slovenia and Spain, which I think that'll be a tough quarterfinal match. We're all hoping that it's Argentina, but at the same time, we are ready to you know, go through whoever we have to go through to get a medal. So I'm not sure the guys will be thinking too much about we'd rather this team rather that team. I think that is the task at hand for them is three more wins and, and having a gold medal around their neck, Longers. Absolutely, mate. I mean, my first question that is how does random work with FIBA? I mean, some of the decisions I've seen FIBA make in the past, I guess I would really like to know how the system of randomness works. I think it's fair enough to have the goal of trying to stop teams from manipulating the order in which they finish to avoid the USA or whatever those circumstances are. But it feels like an autonomous hand of God that they've given themselves where they can fiddle around with the matchups to get the results they want. Like, I don't like that at all. As a, um, I'd, I'd like to see some transparency to it anyway. No, Longley, here, here it is. It's a random bag of cash. 
and whatever flags inside that fucking bag, <laughs> they get the they get the higher seed. All right. That so that's the ran- that's the fucking oh, randomness. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. And I don't need the. I don't, oh, and I don't need, you said it. I'm not trying to get a job of fever. I'm fine. And I'm not the one who eats the cookies either um, on Christmas Eve when I tell my my daughter the fucking reindeers eat it. So don't worry about it. <laughs> No, I'm joking. I'm joking, obviously. But no, you know, you know, I don't know. No, you know. Yeah, it's true. I'm not. You just want to be able to do another camp in Greece next year that they pay you for. That's that's why you're joking. <laughs> yeah, they paid me in feta cheese. I'm I'm fucking out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it will be interesting, Luke. To your point, I don't I don't know how they how they figure out the random drawing whether they televise it like NBA, NBA draft or what they're doing I highly doubt it so transparency will always be questioned and, and we'll see how that all goes real quick we'll just finish on the Opals they are 0-2 the Australian Opals um, the women's national team pro 0-2 staring down the barrel they, they look to be in some trouble they lost to Belgium Belgium looked really good but the China game was ugly we um we did not look good very very clunky to be even in that game late Genoa Hay hit two big three point shots to tie the game and then China got a dubious call late to, to make two free and win it but they I believe have to thump Puerto Rico today to stay alive in the tournament so the Opals for these years pro as, as Luke would know they've been kind of the forefront of the Australian national team program they're the ones that bring home the medals so to not see them there at the end of this Luke is um, might be a little bit disappointing hopefully they can get it done yeah devastated for the girls I, I think that yeah obviously they are they have been the flag bearers if you like uh, internationally for us for a long time and there's you know They've had so many great plays in the WNBA that, you know, Australia's but women's basketball leagues is undisputed. So it is a definitely disappointing couple of matches so far. And, you know, losing Liz um, right before the tournament probably gave them a lot of work to do to, re- to figure out their identity offensively is what it looks like to me. Um, from the games that I've seen, that they, they somewhat lack that fulcrum point that the rest of the players can leverage off as they go. Uh, and they have to sort of invent stuff a lot. So that's challenging to do in a tournament uh, against good competition. So I'm, I'm, I've got that. Do you happen to know how hard they have to thump Puerto Rico to be a chance, Bones? I don't know the math. Thumping, no, just a broad thumping. I believe, yeah. It's that, it's, they'll be the – they need to finish in that top two th- – best third place teams if that makes sense so they need to it all depends on the percentages from yeah. the other two groups of the third group of the third place team so yeah I mean if they both their losses have been close losses um, the China one was two points so their percentage is in their favour but I guess a 15-20 point win should get them over the line um, depending on other results but um, the list point for sure and I think is, is there a chance that the, the FIBA's random rule could work in our favour is there a chance that we send Pro over there with a bag of cash and we get it done? We'll try. We, we can try. <laughs> um, but yeah, hopefully the randomness helps us. As long as I don't see an In-N-Out burger on the way, I'll definitely deliver that cash in in full. So don't worry about it, fellas. <laughs> and, and to your point, Luke, about Liz, I think that's a key point because I think this team, arguably, if you if you knew Liz was not playing pre this tournament, I think there might be some different selections because uh, you know most teams. I think the picks would have been. Who are our best role players that best suit Liz? Liz is our number one girl. We're getting her the ball every... We need some shooting. We need people that probably don't handle it as much. So my argument would be if, if you know she's not playing, you probably you probably have different selections for that Opals team, Luke. Yeah, quite possibly. I haven't looked at it closely, but obviously when you have a player that dominant, um, you do build around them and then that piece goes and suddenly the building doesn't make sense and you're walking out the back door instead of the front door, so to speak. So it does look a bit that way from the outside. I'm not close to it and I don't really know, so I could be talking out of my ass. Uh, that's pros MO. We do that plenty around here. 
<laughs> that's all we do. At, at worst in the media, as long as you just make it up, no one will notice. All right, real quick, we're going to go through a few stats. We have, we have a segment called Useful or Useless Stats, and you let us know if you think they're useful or useless. Luis Scola, power forward, reached a mark of 548 points after scoring a total of 23 in his debut in Tokyo. Scola ranks on the all-time list behind Spaniard Pau Gasol, also active in these Olympic Games with 623 points so far. In second place is your former teammate Andrew Gaze with 789, and in first place is the Brazilian Oscar Schmidt with 1,093. So it just shows... Nice. Scholar's halfway there, and this is his what his fourth, fifth Olympics. Um, just, just amazing numbers. I think that's a pretty useful stat. Just seeing Louis Scholar still running up and down at forty-one years old is just amazing. It's a useful stat. First of all, props to Scholar because while he is a scorer, he's no Oscar Smith or Andrew Gase. He's not having everything run through him. He's not taking. You know, he, he's not. He's not that model. You know, he's more of a pickup truck than a sports car. He carries a lot of other load. And so for him to even be in that, that conversation, it speaks with longevity, but also um, just how efficient he is. Useful stat to me. The Oscar Smith thing, I, I remember playing against Oscar Smith and just being stunned at how many shots he took and how completely focused the Brazilians were on. I mean, we're talking... He might receive 15 screens in the course of a single play. Like he's just running off staggers, off pinches, of doubles. And he, if he has no shot, he throws it, keeps going off the next screen, next screen, next screen. And it was like a merry-go-round and um, really, really hard to stop. So, yeah, I'm rambling now. But uh, but uh, I, I do like the way scholar players always have. I'm really you know, stoked to see him in that company. Yeah, I think it's useful for sure. But let me add a, add one to it. What's the, is this useful, useful, useless? The four assists and one defensive stop that Gaze had in his whole fucking Olympic career. <laughs> I just want to know, are those two stats useful or useless? Uh, we only celebrate offense. When did he have a defensive stop? Well, I'm confused about the defensive stop, but anyway. <laughs> That's a good point. The great man. Yeah, we have to look pretty far back. All right, next one, we'll plow through these because Longley's got to go. He lives about five hours from wherever he's going. So, the Luka Doncic debut, when the final buzzer sounded, he tallied 48 points, 11 rebounds, and five assists. Useful or useless? Right. Uh, I mean, Olympic competition, I think it's useful. I mean, that's a that's a hell – people don't really score like that in the Olympics. So, that's – for the first Olympic competition, for you know, to a guy to score 48 – 11 and 5. I mean, I'm not really big on in individual stuff, but in Olympics where, like I said, it's usually pretty even. Yeah, 48 points is uh, an outlier for sure. What do you What do you guys think? I've already given my two cents on Luke Doncic's brilliance oh, yeah. and how I see it in the scheme of things. So I'll, I'll step out of this one. Yeah, I think it's I think it's useful and very useful for teams that are going to be playing Slovenia. You can you know it's not you're not Einstein. Hey Bogues, are there Slovenian mobsters where fucking Longley lives? <laughs> he keeps on stepping out on all these fucking Doncic conversations. <laughs> I don't think he's a fan. I think he doesn't like the ice. That's ball. all right. Oh, you forget. I got history with Slovenia. Do you, do you, you remember what I, I have a, a deep history with Slovenia? And I, I do. Uh, I do tend to step out, don't I? So Slovenia were the team that suffered from in the World Cup that, that basically were forced to cross over against the US because we lost to a shit, I can't remember, to a shit team. Angola. And so the Slovenians and us have got a long history. 
No doubt. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's right. There were some questions. I don't remember that, Pro. So there was, uh, we played Angola and there were some uh, rumors that we purposely lost that game to get a bit of cross, better crossover match. And that then made Slovenia get the US. So there was some bit of argy bargy between Luke and the Slovenians. So there is a bit of a touchy, touchy part of that story. There you go. Mm. There you go. <laughs> there are Slovenian mobsters, mate. I can tell you for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one of this, useful, useless. The United States women's team are on a 49-game winning streak at the Olympic Games since losing to unified team in Barcelona 1992 semifinals. The all-time best Olympics basketball winning streak rests with the USA men's team as they had 63 games in a row from 1936 to 1972 until they lost the gold medal match against the Soviet Union, the infamous second chance game against the Soviet Union at the Munich Olympics. Useful or useless for the girls? Uh, well, it's, 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 it's an amusement. I don't know how useful it is. You're only as good as your last game. And yeah, it's an amusement for me. The girls got a long way to go. But I, I do feel like the game nowadays, there's, there's less, the way the game's being played, there's less chance for sort of dominant legacies. I think the talent is spread more broadly over the world and the talent's all being exposed to WNBA and, and NBA. So, the chance for that sort of absolute dominance, I think, wanes. So I think the forty nine is an interesting number, but I don't think it, I don't think they get to the sixty three. Useless. I think it's a useful. I think it's useful as far as the stat. I don't think they're going to get to the sixty three. Don't get me wrong. So, but I think if you just ask me if if that's an impressive stat or useful to to know, I think it is. I mean, that's that's tough to to sort of have that type of streak in Olympic competition, especially it's not like the men. Where it's so dominant for so long with the men's team. Yeah, I think it is a useful stat on that end. What do you think, both? Yeah, just the dominance of it. I think it's useful as far as they've dominated the last, you know, X amount of years. Um, interesting you guys say they want to get to 63. It's only, you know, a number of games, probably four, what is that, two more Olympic campaigns. So they are the most dominant team in, in basketball at the moment. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. All right, real quick, fact or fake news, long as l- last segment, and then we'll, we'll, let you, we'll have a quick chat and we'll let you go. We do a segment that you think. The statement is fact or fake news. We're going to put you on under the pump straight away. The loss of Aaron Baines will cost the Boomers a gold medal in Tokyo, Luke. Fake. I think that they are still got the weapons to do it. And I don't think there's anyone out there that's that convincing on the landscape that's, um, that, I'm, that I'm terrified of, even without Baines and fake. I think it's fake news. I think it's fake news. I think they'll... They'll find a way. I think um, you know some of the, you know Reef and some other guys got to step up a little bit, but I I still think that they're good enough to beat you know with their game planning and, and they're still good enough to beat beat the U.S. Not a guaranteed or anything, but I, I don't I don't think that's going to cost them. What do you think, folks? Yeah, I agree. I agree. A pretty simple one. I agree. I think we're we're playing good basketball, and I think it's really solidified our small ball lineup. As much as Longley and I hate small ball lineups, it's solidified those, and I think. Um, yeah, the rotations, the rotations just had a slight tweak, but they'll be okay. Next one, will Luke Longley remain the only Australian with three rings for the next 20 years? Pro? Um, so, I think only, uh, of, I think Gaze has one, I have one, Delhi has one, and that's it, I believe, right? Yeah, I think, I think he'll be the only one. I think he'll be the only one. So, that's fact, right? Fact? Yep. Yeah. Luke? Well, I'm with you, Pro. I think it's fact, and here's why. As I said earlier, I just don't think that – I think that the, the days of sort of dynastic rule are over with the speed that players are moving between clubs, with the way the game's being played. 
I just don't think you're seeing that continuity in, in teams. I mean, even if you look at the Warriors, you know, KD was there, they won a couple, then he left to go somewhere else. But I just think that the, the days of, of three-peats are getting, there's going to be less and less of them, put it that way. Then you've got to throw in the odds of an Aussie being there at the beginning of it. You know, there's guys coming through, but there's a lot of our old Aussies are sort of getting towards the end of their career. So you really got to think that you know, Joey, Paddy, Dilly, those guys are well, definitely Dilly is coming there and be able then, you know, three years more in the league is going to be a lot for them. So they have to start winning next year. So I'd say if you give 20 years, I'd be very, very, I'd be really stoked if someone did, but I'm calling that fact. Pumping your own tyres as usual, long as geez. But you got Matisse, Ben Simmons, an opportunity. Um, Josh Giddy, of course, who was drafted. So there, there are some younger kids there that have the op, but I think they're all on teams that, as of now, don't have that opportunity. Last one, the Olympics will become less and less of a priority for high-earning professional athletes over the next decade plus. Fact or fake news? Longley, what do you got, bud? I got fact. I think it's already happening. No, it's already happening, but will it become even more rampant? Will we even see to the point where, you know, like more, let, let's, you know, let's tax it on even more? Yeah, so two things for me. The, yes, it's fact, and here's why. One is that I think the USA team is going to have to go, I suspect, my guess is that they're going to have to go towards a model where you're on the team for four years, not just, you know, make a call 30 seconds before the Olympics, whether you're coming or not, so that they can develop that continuity piece. And I think that the star guys are going to be less attracted to that, so they're going to get more middle-tier guys who are committed to the program and build an identity, and that's how it's going to work. But there's my, my Nostradamus on how the USA gets back to the top, so fact. Yeah, I think it's fact. I think it'll be all eSports by then anyway, by the next Olympics, but... <laughs> No, I think it's going to get worse. <laughs> I think it, I think it's going to get worse. I think it'll all be TikTok videos for the for the next Olympics to see who got better. But no, I, I think I think it's going to get worse. I think that players aren't going to want to. I think that you're right, Luke. Like I think they need to go to that model where they play. You know, they 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 got to go for four years, and you need a sort of a developmental team as well to keep people in the mix. But I, I just don't see. I think it's going to be harder and harder to find the big time players to play. You know, the only thing it's going to take is another, like another version of them losing. What was it in 08 where they, you know, where they, they went down again and then they had to revamp the whole system. 04, yeah. Athens. Yeah. I, I think that I, I think even through 04, an 04 situation that those guys aren't going to want to play like that. I think that they, it's going to have, you know, guys getting hurt, Olympic Village, all that stuff. Oh, not that they have to deal with the Olympic Village. They get the fucking love boat, you know, cruise ship, yep. you know, where they stay on. But <laughs> love boat. I think it's going to be harder and harder. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it's not just in basketball. I'm calling it for a lot of sports. I think um, it's just not going to be a priority in the Olympics. They're starting to lose a bit of their mysti- mystique. You know, you've got breakdancing in there now. you got skateboarding. They're trying to – they're desperate to get young eyeballs watching the Olympics. I think they know the writing's on the wall. They need to do something, and that's a factor as well. But I think we're going to see more high-end professional athletes, whether it's tennis, golf, whatever, that are just going to be like, nah, we're, we're not going to do it. I'd just rather make my money here. So we'll see how that goes. Luke. Thank you very much. We'll wrap this up. I'm going to tell a story, Pro. So um, I didn't know Luke growing up, and we we got off on a bad foot inadvertently, <laughs> inadvertently, and shocker. Yeah, shocker. Um, so I told the story in the my journey. I, I, my agent was like, you know, before the draft, if anyone compares you to to a, they'll kind of plotting white plotter, a big slow white guy, distance yourself from that. 
And I was a young dumb kid, and I listened to my agency. Use the word, folks. What's that? You've got to stay on brand and use the word, man. You want to call me a big white stiff, you go ahead. Plotter. Yeah, Plotter's probably worse. Oh, big white stiff. They did consider him the Australian <laughs> Joe Klein, by the way, before he came out, just so you know, but go ahead. But anyway, um, I got asked about it, and I just basically, you know, shout on old poor Luke. He's in retirement in WA and just said, oh, I'm better than him. I'm better than in all these categories and went a bit gung-ho about it, not realizing that I disrespected one of the greatest to ever play. And that was how we struck up our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Flying start. Luke had fired back in the media. I remember it to this day. He's-, he's, he's- <laughs> His rebuttal wasn't too aggressive. It was just, I hope the kid, you know, I'd wish the kid has as the runs on the board before he starts chirping, essentially. And then I never really dealt with Luke for the next decade odd. Luke then joined the fold of the national team and we really got along. We're kind of polar opposites per- personality-wise, but we, um, I respected Luke's kind of yoga-ish kind of thinking on things, I'd say, Luke. Is that fair? You know, Luke kind of thinks outside the box on a lot of things and sometimes brings you some things that you're like, shit, I haven't even, I haven't even thought of that before. You know, I've never even given it a second thought and we struck up a pretty good relationship on that and, and Luke calls it as he sees it much like I do. And that's how we, we got started. But Luke, give me some, give me your best Olympic memories. As we finish this off, what are, what are some of your best memories? Now, you went to what, what years were you? You was 96, 2000, and was it 92? No, 88, right? 88, 92, I missed 96, and then 2000. But bro, I just want to go back to, to I'm living in Frio. I'm living, you know, but stayed under the radar for a while, raising my young kids, thinking that my basketball life had pretty much, you know, done that. It's cool. Generally respected by the Australian basketball project, not too bad. Then this kid who I hadn't really heard much about suddenly called me out in the media. Like, <laughs> and it was funny because I remember I was actually sitting there having a coffee and someone showed me this article about, about it. And there's just another story that runs parallel to this, but I actually at the time remember thinking, well, you know what? Good on him. I understood by it's a hundred percent. Like you don't want to be. So I, I was limited. I was a role player. I was, you know, I wasn't greased lightning either, although I had my moments, I have to confess. But I totally understood. But I, I just remember thinking to myself, this kid's plucky. He's got guts. Like, he's going to be pretty good. And Gorgian tells a story a little bit like that. Not to not to stroke you up too hard, Bogues, but Gorgian tells a story where he had a similar situation where Bogues had a rip at him when he was about 17. And this is the national coach, you know. And, and the punchline to Gorgian's story is, after he got cussed out by a 17-year-old Bogart, he, he said, well, I guess that kid's going to be pretty good one day. He had that fire, you know, and I guess we all saw that back then and, and I did enjoy getting to know Bogues later in life and we are opposites, but sometimes that's what life's about, right? Everyone can't all be singing from the same hymn book. And, yeah, I remember going out to lunch and having lunch with Bogues when I, when I decided to be on the national team and saying, look, mate, we're, we're sort of two of a kind if, if you want if if you want to look at it that way where – not a lot of big, ugly seven-footers roaming around that have played in the NBA and won a championship and we're going to be on the same team. Let's, uh, let's, let's put all that shit in the past. And I think in, in, in one breath, both put it all in the past and we, we got on with business and it's been fun ever since. So good on you for being open to that, both. And, and it has been fun. Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. And you, you did throw the ugly in there. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for that. But give me your yeah. Olympic memories. <laughs> oh, jab. But I've had myself in the same bucket, don't forget. So. I said us, not 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 you. Yeah, yeah. That's why it's a podcast, not a TV show, right? I get it. That's exactly right. M rated. Folks, don't frighten the fucking guy. He's already been hiding from the media for the last 18 months. We don't need him in hiding for another 18 months after this podcast, right? <laughs> Olympic memory, I, I do. I guess I've, I've, I've got a bad memory, but one, one story I will tell is so we, I'm, I'm 18, I've gone to my first Olympics 
And I've got my, at that stage, my very good mate, Andrew Vlahoff, on the team. And Mark Bradkey was also young on the team with us. And we got there. We weren't expected, like, we, yeah, we were going to play, but we weren't. The team was, was older guys. So we figured out really quickly that the dining hall was the place to be. The food was free. Like, we've been living off scraps mostly, you know, as 18 year olds do. Down there, the Macca's, McDonald's was free, the food was free, but more than that, that's where all the girls were. That's where all, you could just watch the whole, you could see everybody down there. The, the dining hall was the melting pot of where it all happened. So Andrew and I just posted up at the dining hall. We we're like, this is gold. Anyway, we go for our first weigh-in about five days, four days into after getting there right before the tournament. We both put on nearly four kilos just from hanging out at the dining hall and watching the girls come and go. So the doctor's like, oh, we've got to start monitoring your dog. We've got to do this and that. Anyway, our solution was, we'll just eat with chopsticks. <laughs> so we, we stayed at the dining water. hall, but we never we never used forks or spoons in that way. We did, couldn't eat as much. We stayed there just as long. And we went on the chopstick program. Anyway, now I'm a ninja with chopsticks, mate. I can catch them out of the sky. I can catch flies out of the sky with chopsticks. I spent that much time in the dining hall eating with chopsticks so I could see all those amazing Olympic sort of athletes cruising by. And that's, you know, the dining hall, funnily enough, the dining hall remains one of my favourite parts about the Olympics for that reason. Yeah, there you go. The specimens that you see at an Olympics, you hit it spot on. I remember going to my first one in 2004 at Athens and um, the villages are like a suburb for the people that don't, don't know at home. And I remember... Walking to dining hall was about a 10-minute walk, and, and every now and then I would just stop. There was like a park bench. I would just stop with my coffee on the way back and just people watch and just see like the most amazing bodies wearing absolute, absolutely nothing or bare minimum, and you're just like, wow, I'm here. Like, this is pretty crazy. And, you know, one, on one end, you're seeing the most buff, strong peop- dudes, and then on the other hand, you're seeing some very, very pretty uh, females. So, it can get you in trouble, Luke. So, I, to- <laughs> I totally agree with you, and I can see how you put on weight, and that's that's pro's excuse as well for uh, his weight gain. Oh, without question. Without question. Luke, I had a question, though. Uh, before you go and ice your Achilles out from stepping out of 27 conversations, I know it's pretty sore, but um, as far as your playing career, when you left Chicago and, and you got traded to Phoenix, right? Did you have any like overinflated sort of idea about your game coming from three straight championships and then you go to Phoenix? Sometimes players being in that championship sort of mold and, and, and being so dominant as a team, then they go to their next team and they maybe think that they're, they're a little bit sort of like not lose an edge, but maybe just have a, a little bit overinflated idea about their game. Did you have any of that when you when you left Chicago to go to Phoenix? Good question, mate. I, I don't think of my, my view of myself has ever been overinflated. And I'll, probably, if anything, I've suffered from, you know, uh, you know, the opposite of, of understanding my limitations um, in a way that maybe defined me too much. When I went to Phoenix, I, I took the package that I was successful with in Chicago, but I suppose I never was able to capture the same joy again. To put it simply, I, like I played hard, I did what I needed to do, I trained hard, but mm-hmm. it was so much fun playing in Chicago in the triangle and with the guys I was with and basketball just didn't have the same luster. It became a job for me and I mean it always should be a job but it became more of a job and less of a joy when I got to Phoenix so my my lack of form in Phoenix wasn't so much about me having an overinflated uh, sense of myself as as much as just it just um it just didn't work as well 
The other thing was my ankle was starting to degenerate by then. One of the reasons I think Chicago signed and traded me is they could see that that ankle was on its way. I only lasted yeah. three more years. I, I was two years in Phoenix. Then I, I was actually at the Sydney Olympics nursing my busted ankle trying to get our first medal. And I got traded to New York in the middle of, like I was in the Olympic Village in the Donga in the middle of Sydney. I remember that. And it was that bad ankle that ended up predisposed me to injuring my knee in the, in the game against France. And then, yeah, we, we didn't get a medal that we should have got in Sydney. So, yeah, good question, mate. But no, I don't think it was, I think you're, you're on the scent, but, but, but wrong animal. Yeah, not overinflated, Luke. I'm sorry. I should rephrase more like you got some easy looks, easier looks in Chicago because of the team. Do you know what I'm saying? And then, like, Phoenix, did you find it harder? Like, obviously, because you didn't have the talent in Phoenix, like, collectively. Did you find it out now? Oh, shit, for three years I had, you know, I had some easy looks because everybody was doubling Michael and Scotty. Was it a lot tougher or you just found because you were a role player, it was just as... Let me just back you down with the easy looks bullshit, okay? <laughs> There's nothing easy about posting up Patrick Ewing or David Robinson or Akeem Olajuwon or Shaquille O'Neal or Brad Doherty or any of those guys right. and trying to get your hook shot away. There ain't nothing easy about that no matter what team you're on. Yeah. Well, I think he shut me the fuck up on that <laughs> one, so I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we, gotta, we need to get Luke on more, man. I like this. I like this. Yeah, no Put shit. him in his box. Yeah. He said no. <laughs> All right. Yeah, hey. Good on you. Let's wrap this up, Luke. So you, this is going to air on Monday morning Australian time, or hopefully Monday afternoon. There's a big story coming out about you. Can you just tell us what it's about, promote it, and let us know why you did it and what we should expect? Yeah, mate, there's a lot of answers to that. So Australian story is coming out Monday. It's a two-part series, so the Monday the 2nd and 9th of August. I suppose I didn't ever consciously set out to avoid the media or I just – didn't choose to seek it. I've never chose, I've never seek, I've never really um, sought out the limelight. I was happy to be a role player and that was what my skill level determined anyway, but I was happy, I suited that role. I've never, I've never really either hated or enjoyed it. So I guess when you don't seek it, you don't get it so much. So, and I was happy with that, but I suppose when the last dance came out, which a lot of people saw as a, a doco on Netflix, basketball doco, and, and the last dance was, the moniker, no, the, the, the mantra that we had for our last season in Chicago was Phil gave us a handbook at the beginning of the year and it said on the title page was the last dance and it was our, our roadmap to the championship and it talked about, you know, the, the administration of the Bulls had said that we were going to not re-sign everybody like Phil and Michael and, and it didn't say anything about me but that was the assumption. Pip wasn't going to get re-signed so this was our last dance together and let's use that as our motivation to find a way to solve the problem of winning a championship in a new way because every year you sort of got to slightly modify it and do it again and we were all getting a bit older and a bit more banged up and it was a shortened season because of the lockouts and that presented its own challenges. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling but I suppose when the last dance came out, I did expect it to be about more about the whole group. And, you know, we'd had camera crews follow us all year into our homes and in our cars and to the barber and to the grocery shop. And that's, they just, ESPN just documented the whole thing. So I suppose I was excited that Australian people, but more of the new generation of Australian kids who only know LeBron and, and guys younger than that, 
um, and video. The only no beef from the video games really, because apparently you can uh, go into the archives and dig up the old fossilized players and, and play them in, on the video games. I don't even really know. But I thought when when I heard Last Dance was coming out, I was like, great, Australian kids are going to get to see that there was an Australian that did it back in the nineties, and because it was the first, that was exciting. And then when it came out, and I wasn't in there other than you know cameos taking a shot or what have you. I was disappointed that that story didn't get told. I cared less about my personal legacy and genuinely cared about the fact that I wanted the story told, that there was an Australian that went over there and played and, and, and did it, and I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it that it was me. So I suppose this documentary or this um, this show on the ABC is my response to that. So I want, I'm really proud of what I did. Uh, I really want people to know the story, and I chose the ABC to tell it because I didn't want to necessarily... Um, you know, do the 60 minutes thing or the sensationalize it. I just wanted it as honest and candid as it could be. And that seemed like the best, you know, least commercial and most honest forum to do it. And it's been a year now we've been working on it. And I've had to dig through uh, a lot of people, my parents and my ex-wife have all had to sort of work on it. And it's been a big job and I'm quite proud of it. And, and last thing I'll say is I haven't seen it, but ABC, you're not allowed to see it before it goes to because it's, Proper journalism, they can't. They don't give you any editorial discretion. So there's a high degree of trust there as well. But I'm actually going to watch it with a bunch of mates and really excited to see it. And um, as much as I have a reputation of avoiding media and that sort of thing, I I guess I am deeply proud of of the history that I that I made when I when I made the NBA and then won those three championships. And um, I'm glad that this it's documented in this fashion. So that's a hell of a long answer, but I. I hope uh, anyone that's interested in it is satisfied with the result. And I know, well, the other thing is uh, we're actually chasing Dennis Rodman for the last interview of the uh, to go into the bag. Uh, not sure if we'll get him. He's in Mexico filming a reality TV show. <laughs> Shocker. But otherwise, everyone's participated. So, I oh, know. How about that? Um, I tried to get him for a week, but it was his 60th birthday that week and I could never get him. He was always out partying. Every time I spoke to him, he sounded like he was in a nightclub and been there for a while. But we did get MJ, we got Pip, we got Phil, we got Steve Kerr, uh, and then a bunch of my mates and family as well. So there's enough characters in there other than me to, to keep it colourful. So uh, get out there and watch it. It'll be fun. Do they have Elijah one on tape saying he was pissed because you had so many easy looks against him in the fucking triangle? <laughs> no, none of that? <laughs> <laughs> we might have to get you on there, mate, because that angle that angle needs to be told. If you want to zoom me in tomorrow, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll join your watch party. I'll bring the pizza, buddy. <laughs> hey, hey, I tell you what, pro, you don't have to turn over too many rocks to find someone that wants to shit on my basketball game. <laughs> they a dime a dozen. By the way, in those video games on the archives, usually got to pay for those. They pay you to, to use your character, so don't worry about it. I, I've used you many a times in those video games. I hope you go the lefty rolling hook because I think that's apparently the only one that works. <laughs> there you go. Bog's getting pissed. He can't end it, so let's, let's, uh, before he blows the gasket, let's, let's go through. As long as has to go, but the Strain Story two-part series, it starts at 8 p.m. Monday, August 2nd on ABC TV, iView, and YouTube. For those overseas, hopefully can see that. So it'll be the second and the ninth. Good luck with that, Longers. We'll be watching. I know a lot of basketball fans in Australia and the world will be intrigued to hear your side of the story, not just Last Dance based, but just in general about your life because I think the story needs to be told. Thanks for joining us on Rogue Bogues. Hasn't been too hard. I hope it wasn't like pulling teeth. I, I had to put the leash on pro a little bit, but I think it's gone pretty well. <laughs> 
Well, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on board. I really did. I really did enjoy it, and um, I enjoy your podcast. I've been listening to it a bit lately, and it gets me down that five-hour drive to the city with a few chuckles. So keep it up. All right. Thanks, Longers. Appreciate it, man. All right. And we'll just finish off with a few Q and A's. Got a good one for you, Pro. One of your former uh, little little ball boy minions that you uh, had under your wing in Dallas has emailed through. Oh fuck. He doesn't have any pictures on me, does he? I don't know if it's a question as much as it is. Anyway, it's a lengthy email. I'm finally caught up on the pod. It's now my favorite podcast to listen to every week for multiple reasons. It's great back and forth banter, tremendous basketball insight from various perspectives and overall just very humorous and engaging. With that being said, let me introduce myself. My name is Brett Rao. Oh, fuck. And I was part of Pro's last intern class in Dallas. It wasn't a tremendous year for the Dallas Mavericks organization on the court, but it was Luca's rookie year and Dirk's last year. So every day was still a phenomenal day for us interns. From 11 interns standing around half court watching your guy Harrison Barnes work out, fear of shooting a basketball our first week, scared to grab a protein bar as a snack, to Dennis Smith Jr. rolling his ankle on an intern's foot, and Rick Carlisle wanting instant video review to see how badly he should yell at an intern, to eating the same breakfast burritos every day for breakfast, and many other hilarious stories. It was a hell of a year in Dallas. If you ever want to guess, nobody wants, nobody knows to come on the podcast and talk about Dallas pro stories. Life as an NBA intern, NBA college Oops. Let me know. I'll be more than happy to be a guest. And truth be told, I didn't like you as a player, Bogues, and for absolutely no reason at all. It was just one of those things. But I've now come ver- become very fond of you after listening to your pod and learning a little bit about who you are. Apologize for the lengthy email. Tell Pro I say hello, that I need to give him a call soon to catch up. Our intern group still has a daily group chat titled Pro's Final Infantry. I wish you guys the best as you continue on this podcast journey. And as Pro says, stay out of harm's way. What do you got, Pro? Give us some goss on Brett. Yeah, first of all, the, he was a walk-on at Missouri, and the only reason why we hired him is I wanted some intel on the draft from Michael Porter Jr. He was probably <laughs> 980 on my list, so I don't really give a fuck about hiring Brett, but he is actually a good dude. You know, it was my last group. I knew I knew it was going to be my last year, probably two years before that fucking year even came up, so it was my last group of uh, of interns. But, yeah, Brett was a good, group, uh, good dude, man. He was funny, and, you know, uh, th- those interns, boy, they're – they were an interesting group. I remember I remember trying to get the interns themselves, like get get the thing hired. Cuban wanted us to hire a person in every city to defend people in pregame. And I knew, you know, I knew they wanted to fire me anyway. That would definitely get me fired trying to do that stuff. So we ended up doing this group of like two guys that grew you know, grew up to two to ten to twelve. And it costing the organization like two hundred grand, but those guys are worth their weight in gold. And I think it changed the standard of a lot of teams of how they did interns because usually they had a couple of interns here and there. Our group was at 12. They, you know, teams figured out that maybe not to get 12, but get a lot more than they had. And I think that teams sort of started copying that. But uh, it's funny, man. Like, you know, Rick was hard on everybody, you know, especially, you know, interns that were outside. He didn't want people that are going to leak information or anything like that. So, you know, you had to sort of coach those guys up every day and figure out, say, look, you got to be where you got to be or this guy's going to get all over you. He's going to eat your fucking lunch. So, you know, trying to get those guys on target. Yeah, they just can't be 12 freeloaders that just ran around. They had to be organized and you know, we did things for them. Like we had breakfast every morning for them. They had breakfast burritos, like you said, every morning, the same thing. But it's hard, man. Those guys, you know, those guys could only make it. I think they could only work like 24 hours a week. You know, they were basically living on like $1,400 a month and basically just covering rent just to just to be there. But hey, look, we have a lot of guys that got hired as assistants in the D-League, head coaches in the D-League now, assistants in college, assistants in the NBA. 
it actually was very rewarding, I think, for them to go through a program like that. So it was pretty cool. We did things like draft review, where at the end of the year, we would bring those guys, break down draft video, talk to them about player development, you know, sort of gave them a, a sort of a coaching class every day to try to like get them better developing players to get them sort of into their next job. So it was, it wasn't a very lucrative job for those guys. They worked a lot of hours. They logged a lot of, you know, minutes. Obviously, the guy didn't like you very much, but, you know, <laughs> eh, what are you going to do? Who doesn't? Uh, yeah, I, you're not wrong, though. When I got to Dallas, I was like, holy shit, there is a lot of ball boys. I was like, or interns, as you call them. It was, it was bonkers compared to most teams I've been with. And I actually remember, like, you remember the, one, of the, one of the poor, I forgot his name, Tori's Achilles, right in the- um, Yeah. Preseason, so did. a lot of the a lot of the interns or ball boys, as you call them, they would um, jump into drills five on zero, you know, or even five on five, no contact. And one of the poor guys tore his Achilles, and then was I remember he was trying to argue to even get you know insurance for for the Mavs to pay for his rehab. And I was like, come on, guys, like you gotta you gotta take care of the kid. No, the Mavs did it. Yeah, they did it. They treated those guys really well. Though, like at first, we, they didn't know what to do with them, but then like. It got better. When he got hurt that the Mavs covered his rehab, the, uh, I don't know about the surgery thing. I, I didn't get into that, but I know they covered his rehab and, you know, he, he came in all year to do that. I think I forgot where he ended up. I think that guy ended up at like Penn State as a grad assistant, but I'm not sure. But, you know, Bogues, what I, what I didn't like about coaches in the league that this is the reason why we hired these guys is A, I don't like those guys, coaches trying to be Bruce Bowen and playing D on guys. A, you're not going to recreate what they're going to face in games. B, you're going to get hurt. I've had friends pop Achilles, tear knees, tear shoulders, and it's just not worth it. And as an assistant coach, especially in player development, you need to be having your eyes on the player. And I think if you're passing the ball, you're rebounding, you're playing defense, you can't watch, correct, and teach. That's my opinion. And I think if you're trying to be Bruce Bowen, you know, I think that like those interns were invaluable because they did all the passing, the rebounding. You know, when when Rondo wanted to work out at one o'clock in the morning, when Dwight Powell wanted to get in at six o'clock in the morning, or work out on a Sunday, or work out on Christmas, those guys, those those guys were in there for it. And I think you know, having a program where they're not just running around where they're organized and you're trying to teach them and you're trying to teach them how to be coaches and how to be in development and how to help their careers. You know, like. We gave them synergy accounts. They could, you know, they could do stuff. We took them to summer league to not only help the team, but also like meet with other people, made countless phone calls for people to try to get them jobs in other organizations and things. So, um, shout out, you know, that, that was great for Cuban. Cause again, it costs like 200 grand, you know, 150 to 200,000 with salaries and things like that. It's not cheap. And I think it benefited the players. Players would give them playoff bonus, playoff sh- on like, like, you know, they gave money at the end of the year. They would, you know, Dwight Powell gave like, did like a thousand dollar half court shooting contest. Like, you know, those guys were, they treated the player, they treat the players treated those guys pretty well. So yeah, it was, a, it was a good group. Last group. I think that, you know, our podcast isn't exactly into the 4 million listener group, but I don't think we're that fucking desperate. We want that fucking hack on there. <laughs> There's the shot we wanted. All right. Next one, Josh Giddy to OKC. How do you think he'll fit there? And what would be his expectations? Nice to see some more Aussies while we hit that earlier. Westbrook to the Lakers, another big three for LeBron. His question is around DeMar DeRozan or Russell Westbrook, a better 
better fit for the Lakers. Shannon Sharp was pretty much signing DeMar to the Lakers on his podcast. And that was rumored early. That's from Chris Emanaliza that um, DeMar DeRozan was potentially one candidate and Buddy Heald was the other one. I think DeMar and, and Westbrook are much of a muchness in my opinion as far as fitting in with LeBron. DeMar not a, not a fantastic three-point shooter, neither is Russell. DeMar could probably play off the ball a little bit more than Russ, so... Much of a muchness there. It's just Russ's stats are, are much more inflated, but I don't. I don't think um, there's much of a, much of a needle move on either of those two guys when you compare just those two, pro. Yeah, Bogues, I agree with you. Now, the the thing about it is you got to pick your poison, right? Like again, those three players, those two players. Before you add the third player in, Westbrook or Demar Derozan or Buddy Hield, like those two guys are going to break down. They're definitely going to miss 20 plus games each, 15, 20 games each, easy with sitting out injuries, banged up, blah, blah, blah. So you need a guy that's going to fit in with LeBron, preferably a guy that doesn't have the ball in his hands and can shoot the ball. Well, Westbrook's the opposite of that. DeMar DeRozan's even more of an opposite of that because he's a mid-range player that doesn't shoot threes that much. So like, but the only thing is when those guys, it's, 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 you want the best fit where a guy doesn't need the ball all the time because LeBron is going to want it in his hands. But when those guys go down, you need somebody who could take over a game. So Buddy Hale is not a guy that's going to take over a game. He can't take over a game. He can make shots and get hot, but he's not going to take over a game. He's not like an ISO scorer, go-to guy like that. Where, you know, Westbrook is to a certain degree that, but I don't know how much you can win with him playing like that. And then DeRozan is like that a little bit. But again, the shooting, the spacing, and needing the ball in their hands constantly is going to really like make that a bit a tough sell. So unless I'm wrong, which I've been repeatedly on this show, I just don't think that, you know, like the Buddy Heel thing would have been better for fit, but he's not going to take over. Those other two guys can't space the floor and need the ball in their hand constantly in their ISO guys. So I just don't, I don't, and, they, and neither one of them are really great passer. So I, I don't know how this works. Yep, I would agree with that totally. I, I just yeah, just much of, much of a muchness with that, and it's just going to be interesting. It's going to be popcorn worthy, that's for sure. I do know that if the Lakers don't do well, it's going to be Westbrook's fault. So get ready for that, Russell. Last question we have here: Throughout your career in the NBA, what would you, what would have been the most important and standout qualities for a support staff member to help move the needle of the team forward? Talking more in the sense of beyond the expected day to day work, what do what do the best support staff members do to help make the biggest impact for the team? Thanks, really enjoyed watching your career. That's from Mike Franco. For me, pro, it was just being genuine and and knowing that they, you know, whoever it was, whether it was a development coach, an assistant coach, a, a trainer, a masseuse, that they had your best interests in mind when they were working with you. The we joke about it all the time, but there's there's grifting assistant coaches and trainers and masseuses who will just kind of grift their way towards the star player, knowing that's their best chance of sticking around long term. I despise those people and I, I really didn't respect them at all. I'd work with them. I wasn't disrespectful in any way to their face or anything like that, but I just didn't I didn't have a a, a respect human to human respect. The ones that I respected were people that worked with player one on the roster and player 15 the same way. They put the same time and energy in all the people on the roster and they need to re- differentiate that. And, and I think that's 
the hardest thing to navigate in the NBA, and we talk about it all the time, so we won't get into that. But yeah, I, I always value people that would spend that extra hour with the fifteenth guy, or you know, hey, you you need a massage too, even though you didn't play many minutes. Yet we're happy to figure you out. But there's there's some people that are like, you're the fifteenth guy, like know your place, fuck off, kind of thing. You're last on the totem pole, and it wasn't always necessarily that I was that fifteenth guy. I was always a top five guy most most of my career on a team, but I. I'd see guys affected by that and I'd try to, you know, talk to them about maybe getting some stuff on the side with someone else and just paying for it. Like if it's a mas- massage or extra work, maybe hire a development coach with a portion of their salary. I don't know, but um, that's how I saw it, Pro. Yeah, I agree, Bogues. Um, it's hard these days because it's so fake. You know, most of the, not all, but most of the support staff in, in the league these days are like that. You know, unfortunately, they grip to the, to the top guys, you know, and they don't go to the, the 15th guy. I think the first thing as a support staff you got to do is you got to do your job. You got to be good and qualified to do your job and have that mentality that you're going to get your job done and you're an expert at what you do. Uh, the second thing is you got to have the be- player's best interest at heart, no question. You got to be honest. You got to, you know, you got to be able to tell them the truth. And even if they don't want to hear it, you got to be able to give it to them. Now, that player may not like that, but I think you have to trust that where they're not lying. The, the thing about me with an, and working for NBA teams is I can't lie to players. That's my problem. Like, I can't lie to them. I, I can't, like, if they're going to be like, well, we're going to cut him tomorrow, but you got to, like, talk to him like he's going to be with us until, you know, until August. I'm like, how, how can we do that? You know, like, I can't, not that I'm going to tell them what's going to happen, but, like, I don't want to bullshit. So, I want, like, I think that players should respect people that aren't going to lie. They're good at what they do. They aren't going to lie. They're trustworthy where, look, you know how it is, folks. You talk to all support staff, your trainer, your your masseuse. Like sometimes you're not happy with a coach or sometimes you're not happy with another player. And you don't, you don't want that shit to get out to that coach, that player, your general manager. And I think you, there has to be some understanding that players are going to be sound. You're going to be soundboards to players. And you got to be able, like, if they're going to say something, it's got to stay between you and the player. It can't get out. And I think a lot of people, you know, that work for organizations, they don't do that. They're like, they go right to the head coach. They go right to the general manager. You know, there's certain things to share with those people, what that needs to be said, but not in a moment of weakness where those people are going to trust you with intel or information that, like, shouldn't get out. It just should be what you're venting. You know, because that's what support staff do. Look, you're you're coming in on an off day. You lost six in a row. Coach is fucking killing you. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to fucking bitch to your, you're going to complain and, you you know, you're going to complain to your significant other, your agent, and your fucking, and and the support staff, the person who's stretching you out, getting shots with you in the morning on an off day or, or something like that. So, I think being a professional and knowing what you're doing, I think being honest and I think being trustworthy uh, three traits on any staff member, support staff member, that's going to be good in this league to work with players. You know, I, I think those are three really important facts. And that's getting less and less across the league. It is. Just just being genuine and working hard goes a long way. I mean, there's, there's showing up and doing all the right things, but then just not all guys see it, but I would just always pick up on someone that's genuine and a good person. Um, I'd, I'd enjoy working with them much more than I knew someone was just using it as a stepping stone to get to a different job or whatever it was. So, that's just uh, the reality of our of our business. But that wraps up episode 31 of the Rogue Bogues Basketball Series. Thank you to Luke Longley for joining us and giving us a bit of insight, Pro, and um, you didn't break his nuts too much. 
much. So he's um yeah, definitely definitely got some great stories and we appreciate his support of the podcast. Check out Australian Story, which is on on Monday Australian time at eight PM and we'll be on YouTube and ABC iView. At Hoop Consultants, if you wanna see some of Pro's coaching prowess and how he breaks down games and clips and whatnot, and we will uh we will see you next week, Pro. Appreciate it. Folks, it's been great. Hopefully the Slovenian mobsters you know, didn't uh, didn't catch up at Longley. He got out of town, all right. So, and then hopefully the the hamster that's on the wheel that's running his internet is okay, so he can upload the, <laughs> the the audio clips to us. He does. He's living in the middle of nowhere. He definitely does live far away from uh, civilization. Always give him shit that whenever he has to make a phone call to me, he has to go down to the post office, um, put some coins in, <laughs> in, in the telephone. <laughs> that's the best. <laughs> he gets a bit of a laugh out of that. But we will uh, we'll see you all next week thanks for tuning in